They said lowering drug prices was a fight we couldn't win. The big drug companies have billions of dollars and an army of lobbyists. But AARP stood with our 38 million members and forced the drug companies to lower drug prices. It's a victory for all Americans. But Big Pharma won't give up, so neither will AARP. Join our fight at aarp.org slash fierce defender. That's aarp.org slash fierce defender. At Family Dollar, we know you want more to enjoy your summer. That's why you'll find more in every store. Everything you need to treat and refresh your family. Like our assortment of ice cream, frozen treats, snacks, and drinks from the brands you love. And everything you'll need if things get a little messy. Like cleaning supplies and laundry products. All in one convenient place at great value. Family Dollar. Helping you do more. Using free speech to free minds. You're listening to The David Knight Show. As the clock strikes 13, it's Tuesday, the 23rd of August, Year of Our Lord 2022. Day 892 of the executive order declaring a state of emergency. Why has that not been removed? Even Fauci's about to leave, but the executive order remains. And of course, that is the plan. So much is predicated on this color of law foundation. Uh, Today, we're going to take a look at uh, uh, the... uh, results of this. We have some interesting cultural updates as well as some updates to the climate MacGuffin. And we have an interview that will be coming uh, up in the third hour with the editor of the New American Magazine. And uh, he's written a book called End Game. Described by Ron Paul, he says this book should be read and shared by all who care about liberty. It's about transhumanism. It's about nanotech and how they plan to use these things to take away everything we have. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Well, I want to begin today on the uh, climate MacGuffin, and uh, many of you are familiar with the metaphor. I use it frequently, and I had a listener who... uh, who uh, sent this to me, said, uh, MacGuffin is gaining traction. Uh, the No Agenda show uh, titled their show today, The MacGuffin. And so I'm glad that that is uh, going around, actually. Um, and uh, James Corbin uh, referred to it shortly after I did it. He said, uh, he had a great title. He said, Alfred Hitchcock explains to the globalist how to pull this off. And that really is uh, what it is. Yeah, it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, what the motivating factor is. It just has to motivate the cast to move. And so we have one crisis after the other. We got the climate MacGuffin. We have the COVID MacGuffin. Now we're back to the climate MacGuffin. (laughs) We got MacGuffins everywhere. 
And uh, so uh, I don't know. I, I don't think that they mentioned it, but I, I don't think that um, uh, there's any animosity on that. I, I remember Crowdsource the Truth, uh, Jason Goodman, did an interview with uh, Alan Dershowitz. And Alan Dershowitz was adamant. Uh, yeah, I want to drag these people who don't want to get a vaccine. I want to drag them out of their houses, have the police do it, and forcibly inject this into their arms. And he said, and I'd defend that at the Supreme Court, and I would win. He said that in an interview with uh, Jason Goodman, and I saw somebody who had clipped that out, and um, I mentioned their name, and I uh, played the clip, and then Jason contacted me on Twitter. He was furious, and he said, um, what are you doing that for? You know, why are you stealing this? I said, I didn't know that I was stealing it. I didn't know that they didn't do it. I didn't know. They just had what Alan Dershowitz had said. And so I had him on immediately. I, I apologized on social media. I had him on immediately to talk about it. Uh, things like that get passed around. And so, you know, they may not have, uh, uh, it might've been something that was passed around by somebody. I hope it was because it's a good metaphor. We need to understand how they're doing this. There's a lot of different ways that we can understand how the globalists are controlling us. You know, the Galen dialectic is uh, an interesting way to illustrate how they manipulate people. They've got a lot of different tactics. I think uh, we can learn something from uh, looking at the MacGuffin as well. So I hope that does go around. Uh, we need to understand that we're being played is the bottom line. They've got a lot of different ways to play us, and uh, that's the key thing, to understand that they uh, are, are playing us. Uh, I like this article from the American Thinker. Don't they know that crickets fart too? I, I've mentioned this many times. I said, you know, they're going to save us from unicorn farts. Talking about this imaginary climate MacGuffin. <laughs> Again, it doesn't matter. Uh, we don't need to get bogged down in debating them over comparative farts or whatever. Because <laughs> they want to pretend that only cows fart, right? Well, as this person correctly points out, Hey, greenies, are you taking good care of yourself? You're watching your diet, exercising, taking all those probiotics to strengthen your gut biome and digestion? Well, cut it out because you're part of the problem then. <laughs> because bacteria, whether they are probiotic or uh, not, whether they're good or harmful, bacteria are the things that are producing the CO2 in the gut of every living thing, including crickets. Among the critters that metabolically produce CO2 are bacteria. As far as I can find out, every creature on earth has, that has a mouth also has a gut, and nearly every gut's biome contains bacteria. Some more densely populated or varied than others, and those bacteria give off CO2 as part of simply living. That CO2 escapes a bacteria's host body during the process of elimination, usually through an anal orifice. So everything farts, though you may not notice it. You know, and in this particular case, it's crickets, right? <laughs> Which we usually talk about is silence. You know, nobody has any, any comeback when you say something to them and it's just complete silence and you can hear the crickets in the background. Well, you know, maybe they have other sounds as well. It may not be heard, smelt, or seen wafting up from a bird's hind end on a chilly morning. Uh, but the animal is not the source of the excreted CO2. It's the bacteria that lives inside the animal. You, me, the cows, the crickets, all God's creatures. <laughs> Fart proudly, as uh, Benjamin Franklin would say. Uh, 
Yeast, while a sort of fungus and not a bacterium, also exudes CO2 as it goes through its life cycle. So if you bake bread, if you ferment grains into beer, bourbon, or other alcohols, if you convert grape sugar into wine, all these release yeast-created CO2. You can tell a greenie is truly dedicated to reducing carbon emissions when they stop eating avocado with toast or comparing sips of microbrews or relaxing with a boutique single malt after a long day. So, you know, I, I think one of the genius moves, as I've said, about the MacGuffins that they've picked, uh, they pick respiratory illnesses of which, you know, there's infinite variety, colds, flus, all types of things. Um, and that's, that's one MacGuffin. Got to get rid of that or we're all going to die. Uh, let's take CO2 as another MacGuffin. Got to get rid of that or we're all going to die. The thing that every animal breathes out, uh, and it's not just the gut bacteria. And then you take um, something like nitrogen. 70% of the atmosphere is nitrogen. Uh, so as my son was saying the other day, um, <laughs> that's a funny thread that uh, somebody picked up and started passing around. Uh, and, and somebody said, we, we've got to get rid of all carbon. It's like, do you understand what you're talking about? All carbon. Uh, they don't know the difference between carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide. They don't know the difference between nitrous oxide, laughing gas, and many of these other things. Um, and uh, as a matter of fact, I, I forgot it today. I was going to read it again today. I had a, an engineer who sent me a, uh, a detailed post that I thought was very interesting about the different types of nitrogen, nitrogen emissions and things like that. He's an automotive engineer. And, uh, but, you know, they don't really even know or care which form of nitrogen or which form of uh, carbon they're going to look at. They don't know carbon monoxide from carbon dioxide. They don't care. And uh, so the more common it is, the more ubiquitous it is, the more it gives them power to claim that they have to eliminate it. If you want to go zero carbon, if you want to go zero COVID, which means zero respiratory illness, if you will, uh, that gives you unlimited power to continue your program forever and ever. Now, by the way, bacteria that live in the seabed alone make up 10 to 30% of the Earth's whole biomass. Are we going to get rid of that? See, the problem is um, it's you. It's you. Um, we have, uh, as I mentioned yesterday, people go back centuries. They go back millennia, and they say, look at this. Look at how low the water is. Well, it was here once before because, see, people have inscriptions and things like that. Uh, what happened? I, I would really like to see the SUVs that they were using 500 years ago to cause these droughts that we see today. I mean, that's the absurd thing about this. Everything comes down to whatever it is that they want to ban, whatever modern convenience, whether it's SUVs, private cars, air conditioning, meat, whatever it is, it's got to be banned. Because, you know, um, we're back down to nearly the level that it was 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago. And uh, that, this is real climate change now. Okay. Well, uh, as we uh, <laughs> as they point out, beef, cattle, graze rangelands and pasture land, and they enrich the soil as they go. Does that happen with, I don't know, when, when you have grasshoppers out on the range in mass, uh, do they enrich the soil as they're going along like the cows do? 
Uh, what about the crickets and the locusts, which are, you know, they're all kind of the same thing. Uh, do grasshoppers, crickets, and locusts, do they replenish the soil as they go through this? <laughs> Not to my knowledge. Uh, no, I don't think so. You know, they eat quite a lot. They can have voracious appetites, don't they? He pointed out, he said, well, you know, look at the infrastructure that you need for cows. Well, you got to put up a few fence posts and wire. Uh, maybe not even that on federal rangelands where you don't, it's not required. Uh, you might have to have some ATVs to go out and keep track of them every once in a while. Uh, you uh, could also do that with some horses, but you know, the horses also have CO2. They breathe out CO2. Uh, they uh, have uh, farts as well. Crickets, on the other hand, how, how do they handle the crickets? Well, they require climate-controlled enclosed spaces and energy-intensive air conditioning 24-7 from the point that they're eggs all the way through the point that they mix them into food. No fresh air, no sunlight, no free-ranging for them. Now, think about this. In order to raise the crickets, we're going to keep them in a controlled, air-conditioned environment for optimal growth. But you and I can't have air conditioning, can't we? Right? I mean, as Barack Obama explained to the people in Africa, y'all can't have air conditioning. The planet would burn up, right? Uh, so the crickets get air conditioning and the politicians get air conditioning. But the rest of us don't. The good news is that meat has fallen momentarily after soaring in prices. We now have momentarily a um, drop in prices. Uh, it may very well go up. I think one of the reasons that you're getting the drop in prices is because so many people have taken uh, their cows to the market because of drought and because of feed prices and things like that. So I think this is a temporary thing. Uh, so does Zero Hedge. Uh, they don't mention that as a factor, um, but I think that it is uh, people culling their herds. And um, they say for months, prices for food and consumer products have been rising across grocery aisles due to higher costs of transportation, ingredients, and labor. Some of the biggest increases have been in the meat sector. Shoppers have been buying cheaper cuts or switching to less expensive protein like chicken, pork, horse, or cricket. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the grocery store where we shop does not carry crickets. I'd be very disappointed if they do. Uh, and uh, they will not be uh, selling any to us. Uh, but now that beef prices have plateaued, consumers are finding more deals and options. They say prices for ribeye and beef loin are down nearly 10% for the four weeks ending August the 7th compared to a year ago. So a little bit of good news. Gas prices are down as well. But Biden's problems at the pump are not going to go away, says CNBC. The White House used a drop in the average price of gas to below $4 last week to talk up President Biden's response to record high oil prices and to push back on Republicans who blamed him for the earlier price spike. Well, you know, when you tell people uh, don't invest because we're going to criminalize and ban what you're producing, and then you tell them, uh, oh, and uh, we're not going to give you any more exploration leases, we're not going to let you develop the ones that you've already seen, uh, we're going to cut off the pipelines. You do this, that kind of stuff. That, that kind of policy does have a negative effect on supply, especially when you add to all of that a uh, prohibition sanctions for war. 
but oil traders, industry executives, and former administration officials warned that prices could easily rise again as many of the issues that contributed to the spike in early summer are still a factor, like limited refinery capacity. Because nobody's building any more refineries. They're telling everybody, you, you don't want to do that. You want to, you want to pour a couple of billion dollars into some new refineries and uh, that we're going to ban in just a couple of years? Nah, you don't want to do that. Uncertainty about Russia's war in Ukraine because they're going to keep those sanctions on and they're going to continue to escalate that. We have an interesting escalation in all of this and some major conspiracy theories being put out by the mainstream media in terms of what happened to um, Alexander Dugan's daughter. I'm going to talk about that coming up as well. Uh, There hasn't really been a policy that we can point to that has helped the situation. When the executives met with the White House over the last few months, their primary message was, don't make it worse. That's what they told the president. Please stop making everything worse. Because that's really been what uh, Biden has done. You know, he inherited a dumpster fire. Uh, that was done with the Trump uh, medical martial law, all the things involved in that. Uh, not just the vaccine, it was everything. You know, the vaccine is a depopulation kill shot, uh, but uh, all the rest of the stuff is responsible for killing the economy and the supply chains and all the rest of that. Anyway, the executives said to the Biden White House, there were a lot of things that they were considering that they have not done that would have really exacerbated the situation. I guess they looked at the polls. They saw the midterm elections were coming up. So they're waiting until after that. So the, to the extent that they want to take credit for anything, I would say that they get credit for not interfering more, more. And that's just a delay. Meanwhile, to give you an idea how much worse things are going to be after the election, John Fetterman, who is running against Oz in Pennsylvania, Oz, the Trump Davos candidate, uh, show a picture of this, uh, this, this picture of John Fetterman. Always in the past, you know, when I've looked at him, uh, yeah, look at that. I mean, you know, with those oil rigs there and the red background and stuff, I mean, it kind of looked like Cameron Sickle. Doesn't that kind of channel Lenin to me? It really does. Even with the arm outstretched, I mean, you've seen the pictures of Lenin with his arms outstretched as he's talking to the crowd. Uh, after the bankers sent him in in a sealed train with $10 million in gold, and he starts the Russian Revolution on behalf of the bankers. Um, <laughs> John Fetterman. Who's John Fetterman working? Which bankers are bankrolling him? I bet it's BlackRock and people like that, the ESG people, right? Anyway, uh, he does look like Lennon now. I always thought when I looked at him, though, you know, he's he's got that constant frown and wrinkled uh, brow that's there and bald. And he always reminded me of Worf on uh, Star Trek. See if you can pull up a picture, Travis, of uh, Worf on <laughs> Star Trek and put it there. I mean, I, I just to me, it was just uncanny. In the same way that Lori Lightfoot looks like uh, General Akbar. <laughs> the fish eyes uh, and all the rest of the stuff. I always thought that the, the, uh, the resemblance between Fetterman and Star Trek's Worf uh, was uh, even more pronounced. But now I think he looks a bit like Lennon because he's acting like Lennon. He, he wants to nationally. There you go. See that? <laughs> now, okay, Worf has got darker skin and he's got more hair in the back. Okay. But other than that, I mean, I think there's an amazing resemblance between the two of them. Uh, anyway, uh, he, he's now acting more like Lennon. Um, uh, Fetterman has kept his opponent, 
Mehmet Oz, on defense of the constant stream of memes portraying Oz as an out-of-touch, out-of-state elite. Boy, that's an easy job. <laughs> that's not hard to do at all. I mean, first of all, he does not live in the, he's got residences and out of the state. He's got residences out of the country. This guy, Oz, is a Turkish citizen, and he's not even going to give up his Turkish citizen. He's worked very hard to maintain that. He even did a stint in the military, the Turkish military, to remain a Turkish citizen. He has promised that if elected, if and only if he's elected, will he renounce his Turkish citizenship, because it'll be necessary for him to do that in order to get access to classified documents that he can then share with the Turkish government. That's uh, Trump's candidate. That's Trump's preferred candidate. Of all the candidates, the very worst one running, uh, they had a good candidate. Had a young uh, black woman, I can't remember her name, and, uh, and she called out uh, both uh, Oz and the businessman that uh, was, well, there were two front runners. Uh, she called them both out as being uh, Davos people, and they were. Yeah, they've been at Davos many times. Uh, but, of course, she didn't get the Trump endorsement. No, no. It's going to be uh, somebody who's in the entertainment business, somebody who sucks up to Trump. Both of these Davos guys were sucking up to Trump big time. Anyway, um, now he's trying a new tactic after um, all of the uh, low-hanging fruit that he can pick off and throw at us. Uh, weaponizing law enforcement against business leaders that he doesn't like. This is coming from Reason Magazine. Going after oil companies for high profits is not a new tactic especially for populist Democrats. I would just call them demagogues. They're demagogues. Uh, last year, Elizabeth Warren blamed high gas prices on price gouging at the pump. Uh, so did Biden. You know, It's those people getting so rich at the convenience stores. Tony Arterburn really debunked that. Uh, his uh, father was in the uh, convenience store business and gas pumps. He said, hey, they don't make anything off of that. You know, that just... More than anything, the, the, the gas is there to bring people in so they can sell them stuff inside the store. This is kind of the same model that the movie theaters, which are about to go out of business, uh, also use. Uh, they make all their money off of popcorn and soda. Uh, they get a little bit of money from the, um, from the movie itself, but their revenue is not from the movie. Uh, most of the movie goes to the movie studios. Anyway, as we look at this, uh, there's a lot of hysteria about climate. Uh, forest fires everywhere, floods everywhere, and it's always about climate change. Even the floods that just recently happened yesterday had floods happening in Dallas. And as is reported by mainstream news, they show that as evidence of climate change. No, it's an evidence of a flood. It's evidence of weather, which is constantly changing. And um, uh, no, the uh, forest fires, for example, Daily Skeptic points out, sorry, climate change hysterics. There are fewer wildfires today than in the 1930s. And by the way, we would have even fewer if some arsonists didn't light them and if we didn't have neglectful policies by our federal government over lands that, well, they shouldn't even own in the first place. They should own, according to the Constitution, uh, Washington, D.C., forts and ports, and that would be it. Anyway, um, the uh, biblical catastrophizing of fire is rampant throughout the mainstream media, and a flood, fire and flood, <laughs> dogs and cats living together. I mean, this is, 
<laughs> this is what they're selling you for the climate MacGuffin, right? Uh, most fires are caused by humans, whether accidentally or on purpose. For instance, a 2011 research project funded by the Forestry Commission discovered that only over 90% over 90% of South Wales grassland fires were recorded within 100 meters of a road or a public right-of-way. Hmm, what would be causing that? Somebody flipping a cigarette outside the window as they pass along? Yeah. Uh, the figure climbed to 99% if you extended the distance to 500 meters. So within 100 meters. Right? We're talking 100 yards, football field length, uh, or 500 meters. It goes up to 99%. But climate change is the only game in town these days. It seems like nothing gets in the way of that narrative. And so they've got a, a graph. See if you can pull this graph up. Uh, sorry, climate change hysterics out of that article. Acres burned annually in the U.S. with wildfires. That's good. Thank you. Look at that. I mean, look at how it has exponentially gone down since the 1920s out of sight there in the 1920s and 30s then it dropped down to nothing and what we see now is basically um it has in the last uh, well i'd say since about 2004 it's gone up a little bit but it is still minuscule compared to where it was i mean we're looking at at fires that were uh between uh, 30,000 and um, 55,000 acres burned. I'm sorry, million. Okay, 35 million and 55 million acres burned in the 1920s and 30s. Now it's dropped down to under 10 million. So from typically about 35 to, six, uh, to uh, 55 uh, million acres, now it's dropped down to under 10, even as it's fluctuating around that area. So the graph above shows the U.S. wildfires were much worse in the past. Dramatic improvements have been recorded since the 30s. Last year, the National Interagency Fire Center suddenly removed the collations prior to 1983, stating that there's no official data prior to 1983 posted on the site. Of course, that's a convenient low point. That's right. They cherry-picked. Go back to that graph again. Uh, they just happened. 1983, nice round number, isn't it? No, it is actually the lowest point over the last century. So they pick the lowest point and start their data there and flush everything out, which shows a nice increase. And I would say that this increase that we've seen recently uh, is a function of the, the new um, mismanagement of government forests, national forests, national parks. That's what's causing this uh, slight increase here. But isn't it interesting how they cherry pick the data? Always, whether you're talking about inflation numbers, unemployment numbers, wildfire numbers, temperature, uh, COVID cases, they always cherry pick the data. You can't believe a thing these people say. They lie about everything and manipulate the data to do that. The American meteorologist and climate writer Anthony Watts is less than impressed. He said this whole erasure of important public data stinks. But in today's narrative control culture that wants to rid us of anything that might be inconvenient, anything that doesn't fit the woke narrative, it isn't surprising. This is also not surprising. I mentioned this yesterday. I pointed out that you know France has created 3,000 green police. Uh, we could call them climate cops. Uh, we could uh, look at the commissions that were created uh, over COVID to charge Bolsonaro with a crime. 
as they call that, COVID cops. So we got COVID cops, climate cops, but they're all just MacGuffin militia, right? It's militarized MacGuffins. And so 3,000 cops in France uh, to push for, uh, you know, to enforce green stuff. And where is this coming from? It's not really coming from France. It's France operating on behalf of what the European Union and what the UN and what Davos wants, right? Specifically, most immediately, uh, the immediate predecessor to all this was coming from the European Union. Uh, they were calling for the creation of a civil protection force that'd be across the EU, that would be under the EU. The beginning of a police force, the beginning of a military for the EU. They are dying to have a military. Uh, they want an army, they want uh, police, and they want the taxes to pay for these things because that's how they get their power, you know, taxes and police. That's why when we look at this 87,000 IRS agents, taxes and police, taxes and police, that's where all their power comes from, their oppressive power. So in the EU, they were calling for a civil protection force that would be controlled by the EU itself to fight the effects of climate change under the control of Brussels. And so some of the European countries slammed that. France, because Macron uh, would like to see himself as eventually as the head of the European Union, uh, you know, he's making his uh, choices there, making his alliances. So he jumps into the fray to basically give them what they want to move the Overton window to normalize this. 3,000 new cops to focus on human activity. But also, they're now justifying this. They're trying to justify it by saying, well, you know, we, we've got to um, help with forest fires. You know, forest fires are out of control. So let's get 3,000 cops to get the forest fires under control. Well, why don't you get 3,000 people to go in and clean out the deadwood in your forests so that when a fire starts, and that's inevitable, uh, it doesn't get out of control? Uh, you might want to do that. Uh, the objective is that uh, in each gendarme brigade, there are gendarmes trained in attacks on ecology. Attacks on ecology. What does that mean? <laughs> attacks on ecology. Look, it's real simple. They want a centralized police force. This is just the MacGuffin. And uh, they want to centralize food production, which is what they're doing in the Netherlands. You know, the Davos people said, you're going to be the global centralizing committee, you know, and uh, to do this. Uh, they want to centralize permission to travel, the common pass and other things like that. Uh, whatever the excuse, that's the COVID McGovern, whatever the excuse, they want to centralize it. Food production, food distribution, uh, the permission to travel. It's all about the centralization of surveillance and control, and you need a police force to do that. Just that simple. By the way, because of these sanctions and other things, uh, Europe's gas price, we're talking about natural gas now, is now equivalent to $410 per barrel of oil. This is going to be a winter of discontent, uh, to quote <laughs> a famous Shakespeare play. Uh, we're going to have our guest on in about a half hour uh, to talk about the end game of all this. But when we come back, I want to play some headline news I think you're going to find interesting. Stay with us. We'll be. 
This is the story of a photo album, of first days and birthdays, of grandparents in their 20s and vacations down the shore. It's also the story of an insurance company that offered information to help spot a cracked washing machine hose before it washed away a family history. If it matters to you, Traveler's Insurance will help protect it. Traveler's, it's better under the umbrella. Speak to an independent agent today. This is the story of a daughter. Travelers, this is Carlos. Someone just hit my car. Is everyone okay? And the insurance company that believes people always come first. If it matters to you, Travelers Insurance will help protect it. Travelers, speak to an independent agent today. Be right back. David Knight Show. Elvis. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. And the sweet sounds of Motown. Find them on the Oldies channel at APSradio.com. It's August. Why am I playing It's a Wonderful Life? Well, it's because you look at the cast there, the bottom name, Virginia Patton, just passed away. 97 years old, the last surviving adult cast member from It's a Wonderful Life. There she is, being kissed on the cheek by Jimmy Stewart. Uh, She played the sister-in-law of Jimmy Stewart's character, the one who married his brother and whisked him off for a high-paying job so that George Bailey was trapped in town. Uh, and interestingly enough, there's a lot of interesting things about this, frankly. Uh, she was, uh, the, she was, um, the niece of, uh, General George Patton, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, she did four other films, all of them from like 1947 to 49. And then she got married and, um, she stayed married until her husband died in 2018. The two of them were married for 70 years. 70 years. Uh, she, after she did her last film in 1949, uh, she married Cruz Moss and relocated to Ann Arbor, Michigan. She started a career as a businesswoman and raised three kids, and they stayed married for 70 years. She said, I couldn't see me doing that, meaning film, uh, for the rest of my life. She said, I wanted exactly what I am. Ann Arbor, Michigan, a wonderful husband, wonderful children, a good part. 
in the community. She's kind of like what the movie was. You know, um, she's the last surviving adult member. This is so old, this film, that uh, Zuzu is still alive. Zuzu is 82 now. Uh, the little girl that played uh, Zuzu, Carolyn Grimes, uh, she went on to be in 18 films. Then her mother died, and that was kind of the end to it. Or, and her father died shortly after that. She was orphaned at uh, the age of 15, and she had to travel to Missouri. Uh, where she lived with her aunt. And um, she had a, a difficult life, several marriages, and the, the aunt was difficult on her. It was a difficult adjustment for her. She never even saw It's a Wonderful Life until she was 39 years old. And in the 1980s, if you recall the history of the film, kind of an interesting history of what happened with It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, and I've talked about it many times because I used it for a metaphor, uh, some examples to show the creation of the Federal Reserve which was created around Christmas time, and there's a lot of overlaps with uh, Mr. Potter and uh, J.P. Morgan and manufactured runs on banks in order to get control of people's lives and to take everything from them, that type of stuff. Um, and, of course, when Google took that down in 2013, first time I was censored by the first time anybody at InfoWars was censored by, by Google, uh, they claimed that it was uh, for copyright, and yet... I took a few pieces and mixed a lot of other content in and commentary and all the rest of the stuff. I took a couple little clips from it. And um, I, where did I get those clips? Well, the entire movie had been up on Google for years and uh, had uh, millions of views. Uh, be, and they now have taken it down and they charge you to watch the movie, but not at that time. And so they wanted to pretend that it was a violation of copyright. The interesting thing about how uh, about It's a Wonderful Life was it didn't become a standard. It was not successful when it first came out. And uh, it became a standard simply because it had passed into the public domain because they'd failed to renew the copyright. And uh, so because it was in the public domain, it was grabbed by uh, Turner and, and uh, Turner, the TBS station out of Atlanta. It became a Christmas standard. They played it constantly. And so in the 1980s, after all of a sudden this forgotten film becomes a big Christmas classic, Jimmy Stewart started uh, looking up to see what happened to different cast members, and he couldn't find uh, Zuzu, and so he got his secretary on it, and she eventually located her. And uh, at that point in time, when she was 39 years old, she had never even seen the film. Now she's you know, uh, making, she did a tour with the other uh, child actors who played kids in the in the movie uh, she did a tour with them at one point in time and um you know she goes around and appears at makes appearances where she introduces the film and things like that uh but um, i thought it was interesting that not even she had seen it when it first came out but a a wonderful film uh, a life-affirming film and even some of the characters actually had lives like that and yet what do we see today yesterday we had uh, the release of uh, The House of the Dragon, the prequel, actually coming um, now after The Game of Thrones. And I'm at somewhat of a disadvantage because I haven't seen a single one of these. <laughs> I was warned off of the content of it. I understand uh, the general gist of it, and I know how hugely popular it's been. As a matter of fact, in anticipation of this, 
They say the original Game of Thrones series just had its strongest week on HBO. Uh, they capped off a seven-week stretch of week-over-week growth and engagement leading up to the premiere of House of the Dragon. And as this hit, it had the highest same-day viewership of anything in 2022. Had more than 10 million people stream it, and it probably would have been more than that because they, they, um, uh, the servers went down. Too much demand. They couldn't handle it. Uh, so what is it that we're consuming today? Instead of It's a Wonderful Life, uh, a story of an uh, inspirational character who goes to a dark night of the soul with help from his friends, with help from God. Instead of that, what we get with House of the Dragon is we get incest, castration, beheadings, sex scenes with explicit nudity, and a graphic murder of a woman to give birth to a male child. That's what they're doing. Now, using this thing to push a pro-abortion agenda of a forced birth of the woman being trashed and rejected by her patriarchal husband, this type of thing. In true Game of Thrones fashion, uh, says Daily Mail, is filled with explicit nudity, erotic sex scenes, bloody gore, undertones of incest, and a few brutal murders. Uh, it was always known for that, they say. And um, I guess uh, Planned Parenthood had a role in the script because there's a very, very powerful, visceral scene from the description of it here. Uh, very, very bloody, incredibly bloody scene uh, where they simulated a cesarean section. Uh, they manufacture in their narrative a scenario where the king is told, he thinks that it's a uh, male. I don't know how he knows. Did they do ultrasound or something? I, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, uh, he thinks that his heir is going to be a male. It's a uh, difficult birth, and he has to make a choice. He has to choose between the baby and the mother. Well, hey, if it's a boy, uh, no, no second thoughts about that. Just, yeah, do whatever you can. Save the baby. Let the mother die. So it's a very crude, bloody cesarean section where she dies. The baby then lives for a day, and it dies. Uh, so, you know, you create this situation where you have to choose between the life of the mother and the baby, right? Exactly what Planned Parenthood wants, to show how horrific childbirth is, as it is being applauded by Decider.com, these Hollywood, uh, you know, hanger-ons. Uh, they said... Uh, the sequence is very difficult to watch, but it is necessary. Necessary? Is it necessary? Was it necessary to do this kind of stuff or It's a Wonderful Life? Nah, they didn't find it necessary to do that, did they? They could tell a story. They could move people viscerally. And they didn't have to resort to, I didn't think there was any incest in It's a Wonderful Life that I could tell. There wasn't any beheadings or castrations or wasn't any bloody murders of a pregnant woman to save a baby. None of that stuff was in It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, it's when our country was a lot more wonderful than it is now, isn't it? Uh, so they said that most entertainment flinches away from the uglier parts of childbirth. And they don't like to show when childbirth goes wrong on television. It often, if that even happens, they show that a baby has been delivered and it's framed as an act of selfless love or sacrifice. 
but not when they do it with HBO. Not today. Not today. Uh, you are being pushed and manipulated to hate men, to hate babies, to hate families. That's what you're being. This is portrayed as a forced birth. That's the way they put it there. Unflinching in its portrayal of this forced birth. Uh, she emphatically does not want to be cut open. But, you know, those Republicans did it anyway. You know, they just, you know. Uh, that's, that's what this is all about. To show you another example of the kind of hatred that this and polarization this country has devolved into, the tribal authoritarianism and rivalry. Confederate statue, yet again, another one, is bulldozed this particular time. Uh, and this is right outside of Raleigh, North Carolina. The mayor live streams it while he's taunting people. Not in my town. Yes, sir. Death to the Confederacy right here. Not in my town. Not on my watch. Will this thing be up here? And it's not even about that. No, it's just a generic plaque uh, and uh, to the Confederacy and to Confederate soldiers and to the people who died, you know. It was a tremendous, uh, the, the reason there's so many deaths, uh, so many um, statues is because there were so many deaths. If you look at the percentage of the population of uh, 300,000 people killed, if you look at the percentage of the population, today that would be about 25 million people. Do you think that we'd put up monuments if there had been a war where 25 million people died? There are monuments all over the place, both sides. And, of course, the people who want to purge our country and purge our history are tearing down monuments to both sides. It doesn't matter whether it's Robert E. Lee or Abraham Lincoln or Grant. They want to tear down these statues because... The important thing to them is that they eradicate American history. We don't need to understand it. We don't need to learn anything from it. We don't need to look at the causes of it. No, no, no. We just need to hate one side or the other in this simple idiocracy that they are training us to live in. Uh, even the people who fought and won, even the North, uh, honored the Confederacy. They named forts after them, even as they built the forts to occupy uh, the uh, uh, you know, an occupational force in the South. But they still built forts then. And people north and south revered Robert E. Lee. We don't have any, not a single politician or leader or national figure anywhere that even approaches Robert E. Lee in character. Uh, this is a guy who, even when he was a cadet, they called him the Marble Man. Why did they do that? Well, because people who had a stellar character, they would build statues to them to commemorate them. And they figured even when he was a cadet at West Point, that they'd be building statues to him. Both North and South wanted him to lead. And even after the war, he was hounded by people who wanted him to do product endorsements, and he refused to do it. They didn't want to profit over what he saw was the wholesale blo uh, uh, murder that uh, the war had become. So we just want to purge all that. We don't want to try to understand any of that at all. Uh, and so, you know, this, this uh, story at Zero Hedge, new epidemic of self-silencing is plaguing America. 
People are afraid to speak out about this when we see this type of thing happening, wherever we see it. We're afraid to call it out for what it is. We look at it and it's like, oh, that's, uh, you know, and, and uh, not just the, the tearing down of monuments, but this new society that they've erected where it is, um, everything is about taking things over the top to stun people. You know, that's what the Game of Thrones people, the House of Dragon people are doing. You know, you've got to top what they did last time. So we've got to have more blood, got to have more sex, uh, and, you know, it's got to be more and more all the time. This is how we get into this downward spiraling. You're going to continue to do sensational stuff, and it's the same thing that is happening to media, right? Uh, you're going to be more and more sensational. And even if it isn't true, you got to add those details, those sensational details to uh, get attention. A new epidemic of self-silencing is plaguing America. This is actually from AmericanThinker.com. You'll find it on Zero Hedge as well. Uh, people are afraid to speak out about what's happening. Uh, and that's happening even as they're erasing everything and replacing it with horrific stuff. Um, so says Americans are self-silencing. People are saying what they think others want to hear rather than what they truly feel or believe. See, this is the thing that is really scary because uh, the pressure, the peer pressure on social media, and of course there's also pressure from authorities, but it's really the peer pressure, like the ash experiment I talk about many times, where they would set this up and you have one person who's the subject of the experiment. They don't know that everybody else in the room is in on it. They would show them or ask them particular things and ask for a show of hands so you could see how everybody was voting. And even when everybody was choosing the obviously wrong answer, something simple like, you know, which line is longer? They found that two-thirds of the time, the people would, after, uh, you know, looking around and seeing where the crowd was, they would raise their hand, even if they knew it was wrong. That's what's happening now. We are choosing to live by lies, which tells you that we're headed for totalitarian slavery. That's the consequence of, this, of people being afraid to speak up for what is right, for what they know, for what is true. One in three Democrats, for example, think parents should have more influence over public school curriculum. However, only one in four dares to say it publicly. So from 33% down to 25%. Uh, the left is championing the idea of groupthink, which they claim is the only appropriate way of thinking. And they're canceling dissenters and re rendering them outcasts. They invent new forms of bigotry and hatred and racism all the time. A healthy exchange, says the American thinker, of ideas and relentless debates, not of echo chambers. Uh, a healthy exchange of ideas and debates facilitates personal growth and, in turn, societal growth. It also causes unity as people began to empathize with the opposing point of view and indeed the individual. What is troubling is that this practice of adhering to groupthink and self-silencing is spreading like an epidemic. Individuals from this mob have been cultivated from a very young age. That's the purpose of the institutional schools, to do precisely this. It's not even a theory anymore. It's been demonstrated and shown openly so many times in the last couple of years that it is just to state the obvious. Social media plays a huge part in this. PR films use bots or dummy accounts to push their agenda. Gullible users presume to be 
the opinion, they presume that to be the opinion of the majority. And so they go along with it because this is like the ash experiment. That's like I've said many times. <clears throat> when you look at the way they control us, mainstream media is really like uh, the Milgram experiment where you have authority figures telling you this, you know, do this and that. That's the way it is, right? And so that's what people believe because that's coming from the authority figures, mainstream media. With social media, that's the ash experiment. And you don't realize that you're being manipulated, just like the subjects of the Ash experiment didn't. Uh, they nod to the most ridiculous ideas in order to be, avoid being called anachronistic or bigoted. Some hope that they'll be spared by appeasing the mob, but of course, appeasement never works. The mob often claims to hold the right ideas and that the rest are ignorant, bigoted. What is troubling is that the government seems to be adopting these in, intimidatory tactics. To destroy a society, you first begin by killing ideas. An unexpressed idea is the equivalent of killing an idea. Freedom of expression emanates from the freedom of thought. If people are censoring themselves, democratic values are being compromised. It's just that simple. Just that simple. Um, I want to thank uh, a couple of people who left tips on Rockfin. Thank you, Michael Graves. Thank you. Appreciate that. And Angus Mustang. Thank you very much. Uh, he says, thank you for all you do. Keeping us informed with the truth. Well, I appreciate that. Couldn't do it without your support. Thank you. Uh, so let's take a look at the war on drugs here. The war on drugs isn't what it seems, and Colombia's new president wants to end it. That's the headlines from RT. He's promised uh, this. He sees it as uh, the war on drugs as a tool of U.S. hegemony and dominance over Latin America. And that is one aspect of it from their perspective. Now, of course, it has also uh, been used uh, horrifically domestically. It has corrupted our courts. It has corrupted our law enforcement. Uh, it has grown the government to ridiculous lengths. And it has moved the Overton window away from people even bothering to look at the Constitution. We had to have a constitutional amendment to prohibit alcohol. Where is the constitutional amendment? for the war on drugs. Nowhere. Nowhere. This is one of these things that was done by Richard Nixon. He did it 51 years ago. Do we, have we had any pragmatic benefits from this whatsoever? I mean, does the, mean, does the end justify the means? If, if we had, and let me just ask you this, if this had worked, would you support the war on drugs? If, for example, they had ended addiction, and uh, illegal drugs, would you have supported it? I would not have. Because if we criminalize our government, if we turn our government into lawless thugs and terrorists, then we've lost regardless of what else came in with it. But we're not even close to having a pragmatic outcome. One of the other effects of prohibition that we saw with alcohol prohibition is the rise of organized crime. And these people compete with each other by shooting it out in the streets or shooting it out in Mexico in uh, big ways in the streets, mass murder, uh, even threatening the existence of the state in Mexico, turning it into a narco state in many areas. Uh, but, of course, um, there's another aspect of it when we're talking about the harmful effects of the users. It always creates, just as it did in alcohol prohibition, prohibition always creates more intensified forms of whatever it is that you're trying to prohibit. 
Whether you're talking about alcohol, they move from beer and wine to hard liquor. Why? Well, because a more concentrated form makes it easier for the, uh, the criminal elements who now have sole control over the black market. It makes it easier for them to addict people, uh, but it makes it easier for them to um, get more value out of, out of what they're doing, concentrates it. And, and so it always works out that way. But when we look at the international issues involved with this failed war on drugs, and, and again, going back to Richard Nixon, what did he give us? He gave us a war on drugs, which had no constitutional authority. Everybody knew that. You know, if we go back to the 18th Amendment, why did they go to all the trouble of having a constitutional amendment to prohibit alcohol? If they could have just said, well, uh, we can do whatever we want because uh, we have the supremacy clause, or we can do whatever we want because we've got the commerce clause, or whatever, fill in the blank, any of these, you know, sophomoric uh, reasons that they have given for the war on drugs to try to justify it. All of those things were still there. They were there in the original body of the Constitution. It was because of the Tenth Amendment and the Ninth Amendment said, well, you know, if we, if we haven't uh, listed our rights specifically, that doesn't mean that we give up on them. And, oh, by the way, unless we give you specific powers over things, you don't have it. Okay, well, we'll have to add a, an amendment in order to prohibit alcohol. So they added it with the 18th Amendment, and they took it away with the 21st Amendment. But then the war on drugs, and Richard Nixon came along, and he doesn't care that he doesn't have any constitutional authority, just like he didn't care that there was no constitutional authority to create a Department of Education, I'm sorry, of, of Energy, or the Environmental Protection Agency. Those were the two that he created. Uh, he didn't care there was no constitutional authority for him to impose a speed limit nationally, 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. And he didn't care that he went directly against the clear letter of the law and the Constitution defining the value of a dollar in terms of gold and silver. He just disconnected it. All these different things and many more I could go into with Richard Nixon. But, of course, um, he was such a great president, you should get a tattoo of him on your back. Uh, it's time for a new international convention that accepts that the war on drugs has resoundingly failed and that it's left one million Latin Americans murdered, most of them Colombians, during the last 40 years, and that it kills 70,000 people in North America from overdoses annually with drugs, none of which are produced in Latin America. Let me just point out that when we talk about an international convention, it was the UN who was uh, at the center of the war on drugs. Yeah, that's right. It was, really wasn't uh, Nixon's... Um, impetus there. It was really the UN. You notice that when we had the very first movements of states saying, we're going to legalize medical marijuana, it was the UN saying, you can't do that. Just like the UN has been behind uh, the uh, efforts to um, push a UN arms trade treaty. And in order to stop the trafficking of firearms from America into other countries, they want to back into our country with every kind of control on purchase and ownership, every kind of tracking that is technologically possible for both firearms and ammunition, all of this is coming from the United Nations, ultimately. Why? Do they care about drugs? That's no, a tool of control for them. So this, um, this new leader in Colombia says it has strengthened the mafias. It has weakened states. The states are now committing crime. 
And um, he said, we need to have a new paradigm that allows for life that doesn't generate death. A former Colombian president, for example, Alvaro Uribe, received the U.S.'s highest civilian award, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, from former President George Bush. He was identified by U.S. intelligence as being tied to the country's drug trade. But he remains a powerful player in Colombian politics and was Washington's main conduit in the region during his tenure from 2002 to 2010. Uh, so again, um, it has uh, failed. Uh, it has failed because um, uh, it has destroyed the rule of law in America. It has not produced the desired results. And it has been used <clears throat> to... Uh, uh, to uh, push every kind of evil. He says it's time for a new international convention that accepts that the war on drugs has failed. We need to focus on life, he said, instead of this. You know, the, the, the problem is, the bigger problem is not that the war on drugs failed. The bigger problem is that the family has failed, that the church has failed, that our society has lost its moral foundation. And people are trying to fill that moral foundation with anything that they can to try to hide the despair that they feel. Uh, they're certainly not going to find any comfort in entertainment, not the kind of entertainment that we have. All right, our guest is ready. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and uh, we'll be right back to talk about the end game, to talk about where this is all headed, the uh, transhumanism, nanotech, and many other things. So stay with us. We will be right back. This is the story of a photo album and the insurance company that offered information to help spot a cracked washing machine hose before it washed away a family history. If it matters to you, Traveler's Insurance will help protect it. Travelers, speak to an independent agent today. This is the story of a home. Dying down now. That was some storm. And the insurance company that offered information and advice to help prepare that home for the worst. If it matters to you, Traveler's Insurance will help protect it. Travelers, speak to an independent agent today. Common Man. They created Common Core to dumb down our children. They created Common Past to track and control us. Their Commons Project to make sure the commoners own nothing and the communist future. They see the common man as simple, unsophisticated, ordinary. But each of us has worth and dignity created in the image of God. That is what we have in common. That is what they want to take away. Their most powerful weapons are isolation, deception, intimidation. They desire to know everything about us while they hide everything from us. It's time to turn that around and expose what they want to hide. Please share the information and links you'll find at thedavidnightshow.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. If you can't support us financially, please keep us in your prayers. TheDavidKnightShow.com If you like the Eagles, on a dark desert highway, the cars, and Huey Lewis in the news. They say the hotter rock and roll is competing. 
love the Classic Hits channel at APS Radio. Download our app or listen now at APSRadio.com. All right, and joining us now is Der- uh, Dennis Barrett, and he is publisher of The New American. I love The New American. I, it's one of my key sources. And uh, so I was very excited to see that he had written a book called Endgame, COVID and the Dark State Quest for Bio-Digital Convergence in a Transhumanist World. Well, that covers a lot of bases, and we got a lot to talk about. And uh, he doesn't just throw the stuff out there. He's got 40 pages of citations in this book. Uh, thank you for joining us, Dennis. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on, David. It's a pleasure to talk with you today. Well, it's great to have you. T- tell people where they can find the book. Where's the best place to buy it? Well, we're available on Amazon.com, so you can look up Endgame and use my last name in the uh, uh, search as well. So B-E-H-R-E-A-N-D-T, and you can get it that way. Or visit shopjbs.org. And shopjbs.org, it's, uh, it's less expensive there. So yeah, um, check that out. I would encourage people to do that and not give the money to uh, Amazon. <laughs> they can avoid it. We all know that that's the easiest thing to do. But sometimes uh, if we want to invest in our future, we got to do some things that are a little bit hard. And uh, I think maybe the fight begins by uh, withholding uh, the money from Amazon when all, at all possible and go directly to the source and buy it from them. That's the way that we help each other. Let's talk and a little bit. Help you by giving you a discount too. It's a lot cheaper oh, at JB. Well, there you go. There you go. So it's a win-win situation for the consumer as well as uh, for you guys. And uh, keep uh, Amazon <laughs> out of the loop. Uh, let's talk about in in uh, before we talk about where this is headed and before we talk about the end game. Let's talk about how the game began. Uh, where, where, in your opinion, did this start? Well, you know, um, if you really want to get to the beginning of the game with regard to where the book starts, it's over a hundred years ago and it starts with, uh, well, it's actually going all the way back to the founding era of the United States, uh, really. But in England, we had the, the economist Thomas Malthus. So that's where things start with regard to Endgame and Malthus's theory and his idea that, uh, agricultural production could not keep up with the human growth, the, the, the growth of the human population, and therefore we had a mismatch between food supply and population. Yeah, that uh, has been disproven. I mean, we we know conclusively that that's been disproven because of the capacity for human innovation. Each human mind is capable of innovating a, a, a whole range of things that Malthus could not imagine, right. uh, and that followers of Malthus continually ne- cannot imagine. Um, as the modern modern economist Julian Simon conclusively proved in his many years of academic work. Uh, but that myth that the food production level could not sustain the human population is really at the foundation of so much of the, the green program oh, yeah. uh, that they're bad for the planet, that there's too many people. So uh, <laughs> all of these things, this this is the foundation for you know what Endgame examines. And I take Endgame back all the way and, and work you through that. Uh, all the way up to the present day. And then uh, I think it's necessary to have that background to put COVID into context. Oh, I agree. I agree. If we understand the scam they've been running on us, and I began the program by talking about, you know, uh, crickets actually do fart as well. And it was a great uh, article from American Thinker. And, uh, you know, they, they, I remember, uh, and I don't know if it was out of um, uh, Malthus work or out of the mouth of Malthus, or if it was somebody else that made the comment that said, you know, we, we can't keep going the way we are. Uh, the cities are getting more populated. Look at all the horse traffic we've got here. And if we don't do something to stop this, we're going to be up to our wastes and horse manure, you know, just because. <laughs> which, right. And so now, you know, they, they always come up with this projection that nothing is going to change. Nobody can ever adapt. But the thing that I find interesting now, Dennis, is that they prohibit anybody 
from adapting. You know, it's not like we couldn't fix any, everything that you do is going to be less than perfect, right? And so it's always a process of incremental improvement. But now what they do is they come in and they shut down any incremental improvement on an existing technology, prohibit it, while they subsidize their preferred thing, which they want to shift everybody over to, right? Well, you know, I've, uh, I've had a career uh, last decade in private research uh, in the specialty chemicals industry. And uh, that uh, particular business dates back to uh, one of the really earlier private labs in this country that was extremely successful. And there was a long history of private laboratory innovation going all the way back to, say, Edison, for, for an example that everyone's familiar with. And, uh, you know, what has happened to that private uh, industry uh, research? Well, you know, we once had Bell Labs, we had NCR, we had, uh, for better or worse, we had IBM doing a lot of research, we had Xerox Park doing a lot of research, we had Edison's own lab, if you go back, doing a lot of research. Um, most research now, uh, unlike then, is now federally funded. Yeah. Uh, those, those were privately funded initiatives looking at innovation to address market needs. Uh, we no longer really have that taking place, anything like we used to have in the in the past. And in the past is when we had this massive expansion of technological innovation, which we're now the beneficiaries of, uh, and it was not managed and directed by federal grant making. But now almost all research is federal grant made uh, in, in funding, and that controls that research, and it's done at the university level, and it's all in the public trough. And, That's right. Uh, That's right. That, that, that allows the funding agencies to control the direction of the research, which, you know, I don't really get into this aspect of it directly in Endgame, but, you know, we saw the emergence of this disease in Wuhan. And what was happening in Wuhan? It was federally funded uh, research into uh, microbiology. So yeah. we're seeing the fruits of federal direction of funding for research as opposed to the private funding of research to address market needs. That's not what hap That's not happening any longer. That's right. And, and horrific things that they fund. I mean, the, the types of things that they're funding, uh, humanized mice, and uh, in the case of, you know, we're talking about uh, Fauci's uh, funding, uh, funding gain-of-function research. Even when they were told not to do it, they continued to do it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, now the permission was given back to them during the Trump administration. So it, it is... Uh, uh, it is a horrific situation, but where is this ending? As you point out, it is, you trace it, and I think the central thing is a, a depopulation, a hatred of uh, the human race, and it is ultimately about population control, both uh, quantitative as well as qualitative. They want to control everything that we do, don't they? Yeah, they do. And ultimately, you know, it, where is it ending? You just said it, population control and population reduction. Um, when I wrote Endgame, this was speculative. We don't didn't have results of the mass vaccination campaign at the time, uh, but putting everything into context with where COVID, the COVID experience for two years had gone, and all of the things that had led up to it, and which the book is all about, leading up to COVID, uh, now we're starting to see data. Uh, for instance, we have started to see data come out of the Netherlands uh, that maybe one out of every 800 people taking the shot uh, is, uh, you know facing death or is dying from that. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a pretty substantial number. Now, this isn't my numbers. I'm taking a look at what uh, Dr. Robert Malone published on his Substack on August 2nd, and they weren't his numbers either. He was reporting a conversation that he had with a, a doctor, a, a, a scientist in the Netherlands who was crunching these numbers and is publishing those numbers. So we're starting to see hard data coming in on all-cause mortality uh, post-vaccination, and it is supporting the what was at the time when I wrote Endgame, the hypothesis that we could test, which was whether or not this would be a depopulation program. We're now seeing evidence, uh, data that's backing that conclusion up. 
Yeah, and of course we saw that even from the very beginning when we started seeing just the first couple of weeks. It's like, do you realize that you know that more people uh, have uh, reported adverse effects, uh, serious adverse effects, and death? More people than all the other vaccines combined for a couple of years, and then it was like for a decade, and then it was for the you know it continued to snowball. And and as all of this stuff was happening, they're just turning a, a blind eye to every bit of it. And, and ignoring it, even though, and, and to their credit, they should. You know, we have uh, two children get caught up in a swing this last week, right? Uh, one of them died. The other one had uh, some choking issues and everything. They do a complete recall of the product nationwide. Uh, that is the type of thing that uh, we have seen in the past with every other kind of product, but not with these things. Uh, no matter how many times people raise the alarm, they continue on with it. So we know that they want this. That's the key thing. And so I guess the, the question is, what do you see, how is uh, nanotech folding into all of this? Because that is uh, one of the key technologies that's difficult for people to get their heads around. And it's difficult for us to know what is happening with it because we, we can't observe it at all. We can only observe the effects of it. Yeah, well, nanotech is a really large issue in probably ways here, you know, large, ironically. Uh, <laughs> it's a really large issue in a lot of ways that maybe are not as well perceived as they could be. Uh, there's the obvious perception of nanotech that uh, it can be used for all kinds of Ill, ill-gotten uh, gains from the point of view of people who want to control others. And I talk about that in the book. So there's research funded by DARPA right now going on in university labs, I believe University of uh, Miami. I've got citations to this stuff uh, where uh, the work is looking at how can you use nanotechnology to integrate with neural, uh, even individual neurons in the human brain or in other species brains uh, to have what the researchers call and what DARPA has called in its grant making read-write access to the human mind. Yeah. Well, how would you want read-write access to the human mind? You know, I think the defense idea behind that is something people can get their mind around. So currently, for instance, in drone warfare, you may have drones operated remotely by pilots uh, remotely located and flying these, flying these things, but they're doing it through a mechanical interface. What if they could be more directly interfaced through their mind with these, with these <clears> weapons? Not just drone. What about other weapons? So you can see why DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, would want to fund some research in this. But now, if you take this to the civilian level, what happens when this hits the market? Well, now put that into context of uh, virtual realities. Whether you have to integrate with, I'm sorry about that. No, that's okay. Sorry. Uh, whether you, if you want to integrate, for instance, with uh, virtual reality, such as the metaverse. You know, Facebook's been working on Meta. They've even changed their name to that. Uh, whether than doing that through a hardware-mediated solution, what about something that's integrated into the human mind? That makes it a heck of a lot more immediate. So you see the market application for success in this level of research. Oh, yeah. And so that's the one aspect of nanotechnology that uh, really plays into this. And uh, the next step of the nanotechnology is where things start to get a little more speculative unless until you start realizing how much money is flowing into it. And uh, that is on the idea that has now gained a lot of traction amongst uh, the technological billionaire elite class that maybe we could defeat death. And nanotechnology is a big part of that. Uh, nanotechnology treatments that stop cellular aging, that stop cellular senescence, that replace cells altogether. Um, and this is only one of the ways uh, defeating death is being researched. But that sounds crazy. That sounds absolutely ludicrous. But Alphabet is pouring billions of dollars into this. Alphabet has actually stood up an entire company dedicated to this. Mm -hmm. um, Jeff Bezos from Amazon fame, the world's second richest man, sometimes the world's first richest man, has poured billions of dollars in investment in defeating death research uh, in, in a corporation that's now the most well-funded uh, 
you know, research corporation on the planet for, for doing this kind of work. So people who have a lot of money are Peter spending Thiel a ton as well. of Peter Thiel as well. Yeah. Yeah, Peter Thiel. Yeah. yeah, and I go through all these people in the book. So, although it sounds ludicrous to us that you can defeat death and become immortal, you know what? The billionaire technology class is funding this to the tune of billions of dollars. So they're serious about it when they're putting billions of dollars into it. Nanotech plays into that. Now, oh, yeah. this gets to the end game. What do you do if you now have a population that never dies? And that doesn't have to work any longer because technology has replaced workers. I'm sure all of your listeners have seen the news stories about this type of thing happening with AI and automation. And you are fundamentally of the belief that Malthus was right anyway. Then I raise I raise the question. That's right. Yeah. If you go back and you look <clears throat> for uh, several years, I've been talking. It, it was uh, it was a couple of years old when I picked it up about uh, four years ago. But there was a projection out of South Korea that by 2030, that's the magic number they want to have their new society in, uh, installed by, by 2030, they expected about 70% of doctors and lawyers would no longer be employable. And that was actually even higher for white-collar jobs like that. I mean, we're not just talking about people uh, who are accountants, uh, but we're talking about doctors with a lot of training being replaced. That was even higher than uh, a lot of the uh, more... Uh, me uh, mechanical laboring professions, uh, which were yeah. above 50%. And, and so you see someone like uh, Michael Bloomberg say, well, um, the smart people like me are figuring out how we're going to pacify the rest of you uh, and uh, to keep you from coming after us with guillotines. That's what he said when everybody focused on him trashing the farmers. Wait a minute, farmers are really, you know, they, they use a lot of technology, so therefore they're smart. And, uh, and, but they're hardworking and, they're in, in, uh, and they have a lot of ingenuity. But he was talking about the agrarian society being replaced by an industrial society, and now the smart people like Michael Bloomberg are how are they going to replace us? It's a, it's a very uh, concerning thing. That is the, the it's depopulation, it's population control. And, of course, it all goes back to, um, if you're a Christian, you understand this all goes back to the original fall, the desire to uh, uh, live forever and um to have uh, this this knowledge and control that uh, uh, they think is going to allow them to do that, that certainly is where the elites are. Absolutely, no question about it. One hundred percent, exactly where they are, and you know they're begin be beginning to be, as you noted, a bit more open about it. Uh, Yuval Noah Harari, for instance, uh, the oh, yeah. celebrated historian, uh, probably most well known for in the general population for his book *Sapiens*, uh, is a favorite of the World Economic Forum and. Uh, considered, I guess, an understudy to Klaus Schwab, the founder of the World Economic Forum and current head honcho over there. Uh, you know, just within the last couple of weeks, he's on record again uh, with an interview saying, you know, we've got uh, a huge excess population of um, people we don't need any longer. Well, right. you know, that's a terrible thing to say about people. I don't think we have people we don't need any longer. Every person is precious. Every person is an individual with rights, responsibilities, and should be celebrated. But at the level of the elites, where Yuval Noah Harari, his circles are, they're openly talking about of the vast population being a unnecessary people. That's a scary thing uh, to right. be talking about. Uh, I just ask your, your listeners to think about the last time they can think of a, a, a culture that decreed that certain people were unnecessary and what happened to them. And I think there's a couple of examples that would spring to mind pretty readily. Several. 
Several, as a matter of fact. Yeah, it is always that, that type of situation where you dehumanize people. Uh, you can dehumanize a particular group of people, and of course that is happening in our society now as well as we've seen in the past. But what they're doing is they're essentially dehumanizing the bulk of humanity, which is kind of interesting. These, yeah. This small clique of elitists with a lot of technology and money are essentially, uh, you know, dehumanizing the vast majority of humanity. And, and, you know, as you were talking about DARPA using nanotech in order to have read-write access to the mind, that's another uh, thread that I've, I've seen for the longest time, Dennis, and that is the desire of our government ever since World War II, uh, even when we look at people like Sidney Gottlieb and his MK Ultra program, it's always been about mind control. And this idea of read-write access, I remember when they came out with this a few years ago and DARPA was saying, well, we need this because uh, we want to get rid of bad memories, uh, PTSD, and we want to put in new happy memories of maybe something that never even happened. And I mean, this is like straight out of Total Recall. Uh, this yeah. is just sci-fi stuff. But And the thing I, I say to people all the time, Dennis, I said, first of all, you have no idea just how evil these psychopaths are and what they're capable of and their capacity as psychopaths. And the other thing that we have no understanding of is just how advanced their technology is and the tools that they have to work with. That combination is something we've never seen before, that a small clique of psychopaths would have access to such powerful tools. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I think you know, the level of technology that we have in laboratories today, I mean, regularly accepted in-use laboratory technology uh, just in terms of analytics technology, testing technologies, the, the things that uh, we use to find out whether uh, something is true or not in the sciences, these things have become fabulously sophisticated. And the scientists who are using them are fabulously knowledgeable. I know, I know many scientists, for instance, in the specialty chemicals industry who are tremendous intellects, tremendous intellects. And they're, they're following, they're doing the science that they're doing because they're passionate about discovering things about the physical world around them. And they're, they do an amazing job. So I don't want to be casting any aspersions on the scientists who are doing this work, but the administrators and the funders above them, they're looking at the work that's being done, not because they're interested in exploring the physical world and expanding human knowledge. They're looking at, well, what can I use this technology for to achieve my aims? And uh, those aims can be good and they can be bad. But the problem is a lot of these people are animated by really terrible ideas. Right. We've already talked about the Malthusian terrible idea. Uh, so when you get access to these technologies that are absolutely more sophisticated than the general population can imagine at this point, um, and you see that those technologies are going to land in the hands of people who firmly believe uh, some large percentage of the human population is unnecessary or maybe could be used for their own ends if they can manipulate them in a certain way. Uh, we really set up the possibility and I think the probability of really terrible and terrifying outcomes that make anything that took place in science fiction dystopias pale by comparison. Absolutely, they, I agree. Yeah, I've yeah, talked about this many times. As an engineer, I would see this happening. Uh, people would not think about the consequences of what they were doing. They're simply looking at solving a problem, right? And, and they're focused very, very narrowly on what they're doing. It's completely absorbing them intellectually, and, and they're not seeing the bigger picture. And I think a good example of that, Dennis, was uh, Hugo de Garris, who wrote a book called The Artelic War. And, and in it, he, he saw himself, he was working on artificial intelligence, and he thought that he was going to uh, be instrumental, or at least the feel, field that he was in. He was um, uh, very successful in it, but he felt like the entire field of artificial 
uh, intelligence was going to be creating a godlike intelligence that would. This is the story of a daughter of handstands, lemonade stands, and first corsages, and that perfect driver's license picture. Travelers, this is Carlos. Someone just hit my car. Is everyone okay? Are you safe? It's also the story of an insurance company that believes people always come first. If it matters to you, Travelers Insurance will help protect it. Travelers, it's better under the umbrella. Speak to an independent agent today. At Travelers Insurance, we believe the best umbrella is the one you don't have to remember. And when you're under ours, you have over 160 years of expertise to lean on. Travelers, it's better under the umbrella. Speak to an independent agent today. Possibly kill us all. And yet, you know, he looked at that and he took a step back, unlike Ray Kurzweil, who's just all Pollyanna. Oh, this is going to be great. Everything's going to be better and better. Uh, he took back, took a step back and he said, you know, this could all really go wrong. And so then he started asking people in these scientific uh, 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 gatherings. He said, um, if you knew that uh, this thing that you're creating would kill everybody, would you stop or would you continue? And the vast majority of people would continue. The only time that didn't happen was when he was speaking to a Christian audience. And I think that illustrates that it's the, the detachment, the moral detachment from our base. The technology in and of itself is not bad. But if we have no moral foundation, then I think what's going to happen is the technology is just going to empower the evil side of our nature if there's nothing to constrain it, right? Yeah, and we're already seeing that happen. So yeah. uh, whether or not we can actually create a superintelligence or a superintelligence can emerge uh, you know, uh, from that work uh, on its own accord, um, that remains to be seen. And I think I would consider myself an AI agnostic on that point, mm -hmm. but it doesn't really matter. I agree. Yeah, I agree with that, too. It may not happen, but that's their desire. And who knows what kind of damage they can do getting if they even get close to that, right? Yeah, and we're seeing that damage now because we're already turning many things over to algorithmic decisions, decisions yes. based on big data that's being manipulated by, rather, by algorithms, and we're taking the human discernment out of that equation in a lot of places. So, you know, I think if this has happened to me, uh, let me go ahead and, and use a personal story and you can probably relate to it. You know, I've gone to the doctor for mundane, whatever doctor type things, and I've watched the doctor not give me a diagnosis or advice based on their personal skill as a clinician, as a trained uh, doctor of the human person, but only based on what the recommendations they're getting from the computer that they're using. Mm -hmm. So we're already seeing this algorithmic uh, clinical evaluation of people it's just being mediated by a doctor who's running the computer now, but they're just de delivering the message that the algorithm is giving you. That's right. Uh, so they're dispensable. You've already talked about some doctors are going to be replaced uh, easily by artificial intelligence. This is already on the cusp of happening. Mm -hmm. uh, what happens when you do that? Well, you eliminate the complexity of the human person from that equation. Now you have a one-size-fits-all algorithmic uh, solution that's being applied to the incredible diversity of even the individual person, the incredible complexity of even the individual person. Uh, that requires the thinking of an actual trained clinician who can evaluate that person personally uh, to do a proper job. You can never get a good outcome if you're doing it algorithmically. Now, on a population scale, you know, someone who wants to be a population engineer will say, well, statistically, this will help 60% of the people, and that's a good, a good enough outcome. Well, that's not a good outcome if you fall into that 40th percentile where you get the wrong diagnosis and you die in great deal of pain as a result. That's, right. that's not acceptable. That's right. uh, and that's not even necessary. But yet that's how we're that's where we're going. And we don't even need full artificial intelligence for that to happen. This is just in the world of algorithm. That's right. uh, algorithms on big data. So this is a problem already. We're already seeing this problem.
And, and you give that example in the medical field. And, and I thought it's a, it's perfect what you said. They're basically making themselves obsolete. You know, they're making themselves into a human automaton operating on an algorithm. So why not just automate this and, you know, take them out of the equation if they're just going to follow a formula, right? And, and I think we see the same thing I just mentioned earlier, you know, 70% of the doctors and 70% of the lawyers taken out. What we have in the legal side of things, you have this algorithmic approach as well. Uh, we've got judges who, uh, you know, well, we're just going to go with it. We're going to impose mandatory minimums or whatever. You know, we're going to have mandatory sentences and we're going to take their judgment out of all this. Uh, we've got prosecutors who are going to identify people. We don't want to have juries. The juries know you're not so, supposed to think about whether this law is right or wrong or uh, if the punishment is going to be excessive. You just follow the rules that I give you and the steps one, two, three. And, and so when we have that type of thing, you're already seeing the, the move in China to turn you know, the prosecution, uh, the trial, and the punishment, and the jury, and all the rest of the stuff, just turn it over to an algorithm. Uh, and we yeah. have essentially cut out any kind of critical thinking, any human element, any discernment has already been cut out of the legal system already. So why not just you know uh, feed the, the, the rules and the formula directly into a computer? That's, that's what this has become. It's, a, it's just a, a machine process. Yeah, and it takes, you know, the, the nightmare of the bureaucratic state, it takes that from where we've always experienced it. And, you know, we have a long tradition of decrying uh, bureaucratic uh, gridlock from the point of view of trying to get something done. But now take that and take take people out of it entirely. Uh, it's hard to imagine a greater dystopia uh, building than one on that basis. And that's exactly where we're going. Uh, so in terms of the nanotech, um, where do you see them? How, how do you see them using this specifically for population control? Uh, maybe that's something that's happening now or something that is a, uh, a logical uh, extension of uh, where the technology is right now. Well, I think the most concerning thing right now is uh, something that I didn't identify by name directly in Endgame, but I did write about it as an addendum on our, our locals page. Uh, for the newamerican.com so people can check it out there and it's a subject matter called moral biological enhancement and uh, you know so let's say the mass majority of people start to become aware and i think it's already happening that these uh, plans to move to a transhumanist population control scheme and ultimately to depopulation are underway people are going to maybe resist that they're going to be critics of it they're going to go to their local officials they're going to support uh, congress people who are going to be against these things and there's going to be a resistance to it well how can we get over that resistance if you're a schemer what kind of technology can you use to uh, abate that and so now we have about a decade of uh, research if you go out and plug this into um, uh, say scholar.google.com, not that I want people to use Google, but that's a convenient place to look at peer review, plug in moral biological enhancement, and you will find that there is a great deal of work being done on the subject of that topic. And what moral biological enhancement is, it's really a misnomer, it's really mind control. How do you control people's behavior? Uh, and uh, the if you look at the de the definitions that these people use for moral biological enhancement, it is uh, along the lines of, well, Technology has gotten sophisticated enough that the average person can't understand it and make good decisions about it. So we need to find a way to manage uh, their moral bioethics in the face of this new technology, this new biotechnology, the new nanotechnology. We can't just have them be ill-informed and being reactionary against these things. We have to control it. How do we control it? And so there's a lot of research going on right now into you know, what are the best methodologies and what are the best ways to introduce those methodologies to the human population? And, and they go so far as to say, well, 
you know, we really have to do this at birth. We have to uh, morally bio bioengineer humans before they're even born. So using technologies like CRISPR, for instance, to take out the genetic traits that lead to critical thinking or skepticism, for instance. Wow. This sounds ludicrous. Again, it sounds to the average person, it sounds completely crazy. And yet, please feel free to go out and plug moral biological enhancement into your favorite peer-reviewed search, en search engine for peer review. Look at academic publications on this subject and you will find more than you want to find. Wow, that is absolutely amazing. So they're going to hardwire your morality uh, from before birth with uh, CRISPR. And, and of course, if they do that as a seed modification, that's one of the reasons why there's all kinds of additional concern, not necessarily prohibitions, uh, but additional concerns about uh, any kind of genetic manipulation on developing children. Anything that you do to them uh, that is a seed change, and it not only is something that affects that person, but it is passed on to their descendants hereditarily. And yeah. so any changes that they make in a developing child is going to be something that would be a permanent change uh, that they could make to the human race. Uh, this is, um, and see, the, this is what concerns me, Dennis. Uh, we look at this technology, and as I said, people have a hard time believing that this is even possible, but... Um, because it is possible, whether they've done it or not, uh, it is uh, very reasonably possible that they can do this with their technology. And yet there is nothing, nothing at all being said in, in terms of putting any kind of e even legal restrictions on this. There's not even a discussion uh, about uh, what should be done. Not even with the people who are doing it. There's a, occasionally you'll see some kind of a, an ethical discussion, and that'll usually be to rubber stamp whatever they want to do. Uh, that's one of the reasons why Michael Crichton wrote um, uh, Jurassic Park. He's very concerned about how rapidly things were getting out of hand without any kinds of ethical considerations whatsoever. Certainly not any legal uh, uh, restrictions on the ethical things that they could do. You know, Michael Crichton was writing science fiction, but that science fiction is rapidly becoming science reality. That's right. Uh, finds this week, you know, we have scientists talking about bringing back an extinct species right now. Uh, so this is honest work that's taking place in laboratories today. So, mm -hmm. you know, 1992, this was, you know, science fiction. 1991, this was science fiction. Michael Crichton wrote a blockbuster about it, became a great movie. Uh, the movie is here. Uh, we're, we're now going to be grappling with this in the real world. That's right. Yeah. I, I, I remember the uh, meme that has like a, a Venn diagram and it has uh, every one of the circles is some dystopian science fiction film. And at the point where they all intersect, it says, you were here. <laughs> you know, and just and whatever it is. Uh, so uh, that's, that's kind of where we are right now. Um, you know, we were talking about Yuval Harari earlier. And one of the things that he was saying was that, you know, we'll control people, uh, not necessarily uh, through drugs to make them drop out, but he, he saw that uh, virtual reality and, and gaming and things like that would be one way that he could control people. Uh, yep. other than just, uh, you know, eradicating population. And, and I think that really kind of comes into a lot of the transhumanism. Uh, so how do you see transhumanism uh, in terms of uh, where we're headed? Uh, talk a little bit about that, uh, because that's part of the, the title, the biodigital convergence in a transhumanist world. Uh, how do you envision, envision that? Well, I can't really talk about that, I don't think, without bringing up a guy you mentioned really earlier in our conversation. That's Ray Kurzweil. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kurtz Files currently and has been now for a few years with Google as one of the chief engineering uh, leaders there. Uh, and back in uh, 2004, 2005, he wrote the book, The Singularity is Near, 
which I think is the modern uh, Bible, so to speak, the modern urtext, if you will, for the transhumanist movement. And uh, what he meant by that is uh, the singularity uh, is a point beyond which we can no longer see. So in the world of physics, you know, the uh, in, in space, we're talking about black holes. There's an event horizon. But we can't tell what happens beyond that event horizon in the world of physics. So in, in the world of social technology, he's break, making that analogy that transhumanism, when it's fully achieved, is an event horizon in human development beyond which we can't predict what the future will be. Well, I'll put that in another term. You know, when we're talking about transhumanism, we're talking about transformation of the human from what it has been into something else, something that's different. Uh, so bluntly put, transhumanism is calling for the end of the human race, period. Uh, the replacement of the human race with something else, whatever that something else is. Now, Ray Kurzweil, I think, would say, well, that's going to be a marvelous outcome. It's going to be a great achievement for the human race. Uh, but I see this as the uh, planned extinction of the human race, and I think it's something to be resisted with all possible uh, capabilities that we can muster. And that starts with awareness, that these people are working toward it. And I should point out for your audience that this isn't something new. Um, uh, this goes back to the 1940s. Uh, the term transhumanism was coined uh, by Julian Huxley, uh, who was head of UNESCO decades ago. Right. So this is not something new that's just being plucked out of the air and is 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 just now being being uh, an awareness coming from it. No, people have been working on this just like these other things for decades. This is Aldous. a long term plan, and the efforts have been underway. That's right. Aldous Huxley's uh, brother, uh, Julian. Yeah. Yeah, came up with this. And, and that's a, a common thread that we've seen over and over again. Uh, these elitists who were, in many cases, they were eugenicists, but they were also working uh, with the, the vision that um, his brother Aldous had of Brave New World. Are, are we not living in that right now? And, and then his brother coining the term transhumanism. Uh, this, is, uh, this is all part of um, a, a consistent vision for the future of humanity. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, take somebody like Peter Thiel. He was one of the co-founders of the Singularity Foundation, yet a lot of people think of him as a conservative mentor uh, because he's politically supported some conservative candidates. Uh, big support in a couple of elections right now. He supported uh, Trump in the past. And uh, people don't realize uh, his connection to transhumanism, which in my opinion is, is the much bigger issue. Um, right. You know, uh, if you if you look at this, um, you say that, uh, first of all, of course, we have to understand and come to grips with what these people want to do and the fact that they are morally and technologically capable of doing it. What do we do? Well, first, it starts with awareness. You know, I, I, I think the, the best analogy, I'm not the only one to draw this, uh, Farah Shavav, who we recently interviewed at the New American Magazine, survived the Holocaust as a young girl. She has pointed out that we are living through a period of uncomfortable uh, similarity to the 1930s and the rise of the Nazi eugenic state, which also sought the perfection, so to speak, of the human species through its eugenics programs. Uh, so what happened then was allowed to happen because the people were either A, unknowing, they just didn't know about this, or if they knew about it, thought the scale of the evil was so great that they didn't know what to do about it. Uh, so, first of all, Americans and others around the world who become aware of this need to spread the word that this is happening. First of all, that's important to everyone else to be informed. Uh, secondarily, we can't shrink from the evil that it represents. That would be uh, 
you know, surrendering the game before it even starts to the people who want to break this, the reality of the future. That's how the Holocaust was allowed to happen in the first place, because the, the people who could have stopped it didn't have the uh, moral backbone to stand up to it because they thought the evil was overwhelming. The evil is not overwhelming at all here in the United States in particular, because we have uh, a system of government under threat, though it may be, and uh, watered down though it has become and uh, less than ideal as it is as since the founding fathers created it, it still functions in a federalist way and we have representatives at the local level and we have representatives in school boards we have the ability to affect sheriff's races we have the ability to affect elections to the house of representatives to our assemblies in the states and the senates we have an immense capability as a people to guide ourselves legislatively moving forward and uh, that those are the tools that the founding fathers gave us that our system of government enables and we need to use those tools to make sure that we don't enable the transhumanists from achieving their agenda which currently their billions of dollars gives them a leg up but only because the american people are not as well aware of this and what they can do about it as they might be I agree. Yeah, I, the John Birch Society, who you're affiliated with, as well as the New American, have done a great job for the longest time in pointing out that local sheriff was a, a key factor in keeping us free. You oppose the uh, centralization, the nationalization of the police, the militarization of the police. And, and as you point out, you know, local officials like that, I, I think the key, Dennis, is, you know, we, as you said we we've got to understand what this agenda is understand that it's a real threat that it's not just um, you know some conspiracy theory it is a conspiracy but it's not a theory anymore right and um and so we need to understand this is a real threat we need to take it seriously and, and so i've said for the longest time liberals had a slogan they would say uh think globally act locally and they understood the power of local politics and they had a globalist agenda and they were using local politics to establish that globalist agenda and to establish their national power and their state power, as you will. And, and so we need to do the same thing, but we need to understand globalism and then we need to act locally. And once we start acting locally, I think we can build this thing up from the grassroots up. And I'm optimistic uh, because I do believe this is a war between good and evil. I believe that uh, God is on our side if we're going to stand for humanity and we're going to stand against people who will exploit and kill others. Uh, clearly, we understand that God is against that. And uh, as long as God is on our side, uh, I think that that is uh, an overwhelming advantage for us. Uh, our problem is that we are not on God's side uh, for the most part. And so I think that's really the fundamental issue with America. You know, whose side are we on? Not whose side is God on, but are we on God's side? Uh, and we need to reclaim those moral foundations. Yeah, you know, and just to give one more illustration of uh, the possibility that Americans may have to affect their future outcomes, uh, you know, I noticed that uh, Dr. Fauci has announced that he's not going to be continuing his career finally at long last. Mm -hmm. uh, why is that? Um, well, I think it's the, uh, the pushback that he's gotten from one senator principally, and that's Senator Rand Paul. So just think if the American people uh, got their, their selves behind more than just Rand Paul. Now, Rand Paul is a senator in the minority party right now, and he's had an immense impact on the one guy who has managed almost all the biological funding for research that's been going on in the world for the last several decades, including at Wuhan. This guy has been the this guy's been running the department that makes the grants that make these research programs happen. 
one senator in the minority party has been able to push back against this. Now think if we had 50 senators like Rand Paul or in the House of Representatives, 300 representatives that were conscientious like Rand Paul. These things can be done by an informed electorate. They can support the good candidates and change can be almost instantaneous if that happens. But it starts with knowledge and it starts with awareness. I agree. Yeah, it is necessary to shine the light on that particular cockroach, Fauci. Uh, but, you know, it's also we have to get people to understand the broader agenda. And I think that's where your book comes in. People have to understand that, you know, Fauci is just a player in this game. He's an important player. He's been uh, very productive for their side for quite a long time. Uh, but, you know, like everything else, uh, soon you'll look for him and he'll be gone. And there'll be somebody else in his place because the agenda remains. The agenda has persisted over generation, over generation, over generation. This is an agenda that has been around for millennia, but it's now gotten new life and new power from the merger of technology. I think we have another Tower of Babel moment that is coming up here. Yep. There's so many different conversions of different things. Uh, you know, when, when we look at the cyclical uh, cycle of, of history, all these different things are converging. And uh, this is a, a very, very dangerous time. It's a, a time of crisis, but that's also a time of opportunity. So I think the opportunity is for us to educate each other. We need to educate people who are in the military, who are in the police, who are in technology uh, about what is happening with this, because there are some good people in technology, and technology is nothing but a tool. And, and so right. all these technologies could be used for good. Uh, the, the issue is not the technology. The issue is evil human nature. And, and right. there's an element of that in each and every one of us. But if it's unrestrained, uh, then it is a, a horrific thing. Well, it sounds like a very interesting book. Unfortunately, I hadn't had time to read it yet. Um, and uh, But I do read your publication, uh, The New American. Uh, Davis uh, Dennis Barrett is the publisher of The New American. Uh, I get the magazine, and, um, uh, and of course, I, I check the website. It's, uh, it's always uh, a great source of information, always standing for individual freedom and liberty and for life. And so I really do appreciate your work in many ways. And I'm looking forward to reading this book. The book again is Endgame, COVID and the Dark State Quest for Biodigital Convergence in a Transhumanist World. And um, uh, look up moral biological enhancement while you're at it as well. Thank you so much for joining us, Dennis. Appreciate it. Thanks, David. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right, folks, we're going to be right back. This is the story of a daughter, of handstands, lemonade stands, and first corsages, and that perfect driver's license picture. Travelers, this is Carlos. Someone just hit my car. Is everyone okay? Are you safe? It's also the story of an insurance company that believes people always come first. If it matters to you, Travelers Insurance will help protect it. Travelers, it's better under the umbrella. Speak to an independent agent today. This is the story of a home. Dying down now. That was some storm. And the insurance company that offered information and advice to help prepare that home for the worst. If it matters to you, Travelers Insurance will help protect it. Travelers, speak to an independent agent today. Stay with us. Listening to the David Knight Show. 
Sometimes your day needs a little smoothing. Check out the Jazz Channel at APSRadio.com and the APS Radio app and leave the stress behind. All right, I want to take a moment here and thank people who support the broadcast. Uh, I received this from Sylvia. Just wanted to uh, give you a shout out. And um, such a nice handwritten note. Um, and uh, uh, so I'll just uh, respond to it orally here because I would be embarrassed to uh, uh, send this back. It's uh, essentially calligraphy and uh, it looks so nice. And I just wanted to also say, I don't think that it was, it was forwarded to us, which the good news is uh, that uh, our PO box had expired in uh, Texas, but it is still apparently forwarding things. Uh, but I noticed that the note was written back in March and, uh, but it wasn't mailed uh, until August. And so uh, perhaps that's one of the reasons why it went to the other address. But I just want to remind people, uh, I want to thank Sylvia and uh, let you know that I, I did receive it. And I want to remind people that we do have a new address, a new PO box in Tennessee. So if you're not sending it to Kodak, Tennessee, um, we might still be able to get it, but uh, please uh, update that. And we have updated that on um, the uh, website on thedavidnightshow.com, which tells you, uh, gives you the P.O. box, also tells you where you can find the broadcast in video format as well as in audio format. And um, I want to thank uh, the people who have sent uh, checks this week, uh, Dale L., Clay R., Scott C., uh, Charlie with APS, thank you, Charlie, and uh, Sylvia D., uh, also Molly P., I just want her to uh, know that uh, we gave uh, Justin, who was uh, with Untether the Truth, we gave um, her kind uh, letter uh, that she wrote. Uh, she offered uh, words of condolence to uh, Justin on the loss of his, lo- of his wife, uh, which happened uh, right after uh, I did an interview with him. And uh, so we wish him the best. And um, so... Um, just want to thank all those people who have sent things. I think I mentioned Clay there. Um, and uh, when Clay, uh, Clay R. sent this, he said, uh, My friend, I've never given any radio, TV, or podcaster ever before. I hope this will be an indicator of how much I appreciate your work. Well, that is really a kind uh, gesture. I really do appreciate that. Thank you very much. Uh, that is very kind. Uh, Lewis Tart, uh, thank you for the tip. He says, Alexander Dugan has suffered a suspected heart attack, or could it be another assassination attempt? Uh, Epic Times is reporting this. Yes, I didn't report that yesterday. Uh, I should have uh, reported it yesterday, but um, that happened almost immediately. And looking at the pictures of him and of his grief, uh, I I think that um, I don't think that that was necessarily an assassination attempt. But I think it is interesting when it's ideas that are so important to people that they want to take that down. I have uh, more to say. Uh, about uh, what has developed with this. There's a lot of conspiracy theories coming from the mainstream media as to um, uh, what happened with that uh, bombing. And so we're going to talk about that coming up here in a moment. Uh, Rhonda Tate, thank you very much for the tip. And also Nick Ellenbecker. Thank you, both of you uh, there on Rockfin. Um, And uh, before I get to um, Alexander Dugan, I do want to talk about the toxic meds because I think it's important that we talk about Fauci. Uh, you know, Fauci was one of two very smart people that were part of the Trump uh, agenda. Uh, Burks was the other one uh, right there at the beginning on that Friday the 13th, March 13th, when Trump did his executive order. But of course, there were other, other executive orders that happened before that. That was the one 
that enabled so many different things that were done to us, but there was also an executive order of sorts by uh, Trump's big pharmaceutical executive that he put in charge of HHS, Alex Azar, who he brought out of Eli Lilly as a CEO and put him in charge of HHS to run this thing. And then we had uh, Fauci back in October of 2019. Uh, that was before anybody had said anything about some kind of China virus or COVID or anything. That was not in view at all. And I've played many times for you. I won't play it again today. Many times, Fauci saying, uh, in response to the question of the, the panel that they had there about how they can speed up the approval of vaccines so they can make their money quicker. And the guy says, well, how do we do this? How do we blow this whole thing up? You know, we don't want to wait 10 years worth of testing in order to see whether this thing is safe and effective. You know, we don't want to do that. And it does take 10 years if you want to know if something is safe or effective as a vaccine because of the Nuremberg Code, they would not expose a control group that had not even gotten the treatment, they would not expose that group to the disease deliberately. That would be unethical under the Nuremberg trial. So when you have something like a vaccine that is designed to prevent people from getting a disease, and they say, well, this is the most dangerous disease we've ever had. Uh, that was the narrative. And so when you have something like that, you can't expose uh, people who haven't been uh, given any treatment at all to prevent it. And that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about the way they do it with therapeutics. With therapeutics, you've got both the control group that gets a placebo as well as the other group. They've already got the disease or the condition. And so you're not giving them anything new. And so, you know, you have a double-blind study. Nobody knows who's getting the real, the new drug and, and who isn't getting it, who's getting a placebo. Uh, but these are people who already have the disease. The idea, however, and so they would, they would do that and, um, you know, they would watch it. And that would take a, a good deal of time by the time they go through the animal trials, the phase one, the phase two, the phase three. But when you're talking about a vaccine, the whole purpose of a vaccine is to keep you from getting the disease, which is why this is a utter and complete failure. It's not 95% effective. And yet the, the press is pretending that it is to this day as they write the professional obituary of uh, Fauci. They're pretending that, oh, look at this. We got right away this unprecedented case where we got a couple of vaccines out right away that were 95% effective. No, they weren't. Because how do you determine that? You determine over a period of time. Uh, we're not even through the amount of time at this point in time. We're not even through what they would have done for a phase two test. Uh, and uh, we already know how ineffective they are. But um, so... Fauci was there. He's one of the two smart people that got uh, Trump to fund this. And uh, back in October, he said, well, the way we do this, the way we get rid of this 10-year testing is we, we do it disruptively. We create chaos and disruption. We do it from the inside, and we do it step by step, iteratively. And a month before that now, you know, uh, we, we also know in September, President Trump had another executive order, which followed through exactly line by line. Uh, how they were getting the different groups lined up to do this stuff back in September. And so he looked at these two very smart people. He said, well, now uh, Fauci's retiring. Burks, as she wrote her book um, and went on the tour a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of the interviews, she said, well, I knew that the vaccines were not going to protect anybody. I knew 
we overplayed them. They knew they were lying. And Fauci lied about natural immunity and everything else, frankly. But you know, when we, we look at it, it's not just about the vaccines that he lied, not just about safety and the efficacy. It wasn't that he was just going through a, uh, a prescribed set of steps, step by step, to destroy and disrupt our society and do it from the inside. No, I mean, it wasn't just the jabs. It was also the masks. It was the lockdowns. It was a debate over natural immunity and social distancing and all the rest of this stuff. And Trump was so proud of it, so proud of all of it. He was proud of the social distancing and the lockdown and how he had saved people's lives and saved people's lives with the vaccines. But it was a big part of that. It wasn't just the vaccines that he was proud of. He was proud of the entire program, the entire program that was run by Fauci. Uh, As a matter of fact, we can see from what Fauci wrote on March the 2nd, 11 days before the executive order, uh, we see that he was saying social distancing is not really geared to waiting for a vaccine, he said. The major point is to prevent easy spread of infection in schools by closing them, crowded events such as theaters, by canceling events, uh, workplaces, do teleworking wherever possible. The plan was already in, and in this March 2nd email, he makes it clear that he's one of these zero COVID people, just like the Chinese that are locking down Shanghai still. He was and remains uh, to be a zero COVID person. Uh, of course, that didn't work here or anywhere else. Uh, the vaccines that he championed didn't stop infection or spread. In other words, they're a total failure because that's the purpose of a vaccine. They'll always say, well, it's supposed to stop the spread. It's supposed to stop you from getting it. No, they redefined that. They redefined the definition of vaccination. And uh, while they were at it, they redefined our Constitution too, didn't they? for all practical purposes, if we let them get away with this. He's going to retire, and they're estimating, according to reason, that he will get $350,000 a year from the government after he retires. And I want to point out, as a listener who worked um, in the federal bureaucracy pointed out, he said, if you look at the law, the salary of federal bureaucrats is supposed to be capped at the salary of the vice president. Now, Fauci's making now, in 2020, his, his salary was $434,000. Uh, he's gotten raises since then. But he was making, two years ago, 434000 He was making more than the president of the United States. But he's not supposed to make more than the vice president. The president makes 400000 Fauci was making 434000 But by law, nobody, not even the heads of the different departments, are supposed to make more than the vice president, which is $235,000. Fauci is making nearly twice that. How is that happening? I mean, I would like to know. I've mentioned this several times. I can't find any explanation for that. Uh, The press doesn't seem to be aware of it. I was not aware of that until it was pointed out to me by a listener. Uh, When you look at all the cabinet officials, when you look at the head of the NIH, which is the agency that he works for, when you look at the head of HHS, When you look at all of the different cabinet heads everywhere, their salary is capped at the salary of the vice president, $235,000. So how is Fauci higher than that? Uh, And uh, whatever the salary is that they're paying him, they're going to give him 80% of that. So uh, he's going to get more than $350,000 per year. Uh, Reason 
uh, only had the uh, 2020 salary, but he's been given big raises every year since then. Uh, the Zlinko Freedom Foundation, of course, um, Zlinko himself has uh, passed away in just the last couple of months, but um, the foundation that he started uh, continues, and the co-chair of the Zelenko Freedom Foundation had this to say about the resignation of Fauci. It's not enough that Fauci is stepping down. No person in the country is more responsible for the disastrous response to COVID and the erosion of faith in the medical profession and our healthcare system in general than Dr. Fauci. He has a lot of explaining to do once he is indicted for crimes against humanity. Well, he should be. He should be. But the reality is, is that the buck stops at the president. That really is where it's at. Truman was right about that. You know, he had the sign on his desk, the buck stops here. Why? Because everybody works for him. And if he allows somebody who is doing bad things to remain in office, then he has signed on to that. He is a part of that. And as I've pointed out before, <clears throat> Trump was the producer. Fauci may have been the director and one of the chief actors, but uh, Donald Trump was also the producer. He provided the money for it all. And he was also had a uh, supporting role in this. It was pretty key. He was a co-star of all this. And the money that he was producing went to bad governors of both parties to put their uh, one foot on our neck and to stomp us with the other one. And he kept funding it. So he kept funding these governors like Newsom and Cuomo and Whitmer and Brad Little. He kept funding them while he was also funding Fauci and also funding the pharmaceutical companies and also continuing the lockdown and leaving Fauci in in spite of the pleas of the people who just before the election were shouting at him, fire Fauci. They said, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, you know, maybe I will. I said it at the time. He won't. And he didn't. Fauci yesterday said, I didn't recommend locking anything down. But Fauci in October of 2020 said, I recommended to the president that we shut the country down. So which is it? Well, the man with two faces, and of course, with two faces, you got to wear two masks, right? <laughs> you double up on it. You know, where are they headed now with us now? Here's where I think we're headed. Yeah, I think Fauci has been cut off because he's become a liability to them. Uh, as our guest, uh, Dennis Barrett, was saying, uh, because Rand Paul has targeted him, uh, he's become odious. He's become a symbol of the lies, the duplicity, the conspiracy of all of this. He's been there from the very beginning. And, um, you know, Fauci has, if you think of his career, uh, it was when he began in 1986 under Reagan, that was when he gave uh, legal immunity to the vaccine companies for anything that they did to kids, for to kids. Gave them legal immunity. That was under Reagan. And uh, then uh, also under Reagan, uh, he ran the HIV thing, you know, AIDS, saying that it was the HIV virus, which... Kerry Mullis adamantly denied that they could use the PCR test to prove that. He said, whether or not that's true, you can't use a PCR test to prove that because a PCR test can find anything that you're looking for. Uh, but Fauci used that. And um, then 
played games with a pharmaceutical company. It had a lot of people who died from AIDS because they were waiting. You know, Fauci kept control of what was going to be delivered to people. Uh, when you go forward into the, uh, of course, he was you know, given a Medal of Honor by uh, the Bush guys, and then you go into uh, W. Bush's administration. Uh, he's there as they're running Dark Winter. Uh, the other shooter dropped from the 9-11 takeover. Uh, he's there when they gave extended immunity in 2005 in the Bush administration. And then under Trump, you ran out the uh, Operation Warp Speed and the rest of the stuff. Isn't it interesting how much Fauci, beloved by the Democrats, despised by Republicans, isn't it interesting how much Fauci can get done under a Republican president, whether it's Reagan, Bush one, Bush two, or Trump. That's where he had his major milestones, if you stop and think about it. See, that's the way they use the Republican presidents. That's the way they use them. And so now he's got to be cut loose. And it has been very damaging now to this narrative of vaccines being the way to cure all disease. And so in order to get their credibility back, it's necessary to get rid of uh, Fauci. He can still have a very lucrative career working for the pharmaceutical companies on the outside as he's been working from the inside to disrupt and to destroy our society. Uh, but now they have to repair the reputational damage to vaccines. They don't need to repair Fauci's reputation, but they do need to repair the reputation for vaccines. So how are they going to do this? Two ways, and you see them already there. Uh, measles and polio. These are their preferred narratives to push. And so this is why you are seeing them make all this big deal about finding some polio viruses in the sewer of New York. Going back to April. And uh, so now, you know, they say, well, now we're looking in the sewer and we see even more of it in the sewer. It's like, well, you give people a live but weakened polio virus, you inject them with it, uh, you're going to then see it if you look for it in the sewer. Just a matter of fact. doesn't mean that they're sick, uh, but it means that they're passing on what you gave them. In the same way that if you give people an mRNA injection that is designed to make your body manufacture a spike protein, and then you go look for that spike protein, guess what? You're going to find it, and you can use that as a case to shut people down. And so now they want to come back and restart polio vaccination program. They think that polio is the magic bullet for bringing back their reputation. Uh, so I'll have to uh, do a program to, to focus on the polio scam from the middle of the 20th century. But the other scam is measles. Huge, huge scam. It's a big scam, right? And uh, I was furious when Trump said, They have to get the shot. The right. vaccinations are so important. This is really Well, that was about measles. Now. That was about measles. But it was also using measles to take away religious exemptions, right? Uh, and the context of what he's talking about there, those are laws in California and New York to take away the religious exemptions for parents for their kids. You're not going to get an education. We're not even going to allow you to go to a private religious school that has a religious objection to these vaccines. Um, no, you got to take the shot because it's going around. And so now we've got to come up with a new measles epidemic. So enter Zimbabwe. Measles outbreak kills at least 157 children. I don't believe that for a second. 
I don't believe that for a second. Uh, I grew up with measles. One of the things I said about Trump when, he's, when he put this garbage out in 2019, you stop and think about it, how they were ramping this whole thing up. May of 2019, he said, well, I just played for you. By September, he's signing an executive order that essentially laid out all of the powers and gave responsibility and started all these different department heads working on what was going to be the COVID lockdown. Uh, and the next month, you had uh, Fauci saying, well, how do we do this? We do it from the inside with disruption, all the rest of this stuff. So they were laying all of this stuff out as a foundational thing. And I said when, when um, Trump did that, I said, that's absolutely reprehensible. He's older than I am, and he knows that in our generation, everybody was getting measles. I never, ever, ever heard of anybody dying with measles. Now, they've uh, since come out, and they've found some people who they said, well, they had complications and other things like that. I, I don't know if they died from measles or if they died with measles, but it was absolutely unheard of. And the evidence of that is the fact that everybody in my generation you know, Karen grew up in New York. I grew up in Florida. Same situation. When your parents find out somebody in the neighborhood's got measles, go down there and get it. The sooner you get it, the better, because you're able to cope with this at a younger age. The younger, the better to cope with it and just get it done, you know, and you're, then you got lifetime immunity. So why would Trump say that? He was from that generation as well. Um, <clears throat> so Texting privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting enrolls for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply. Stop, stop, stop. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. That's right. Millions of kids in kindergarten through third grade in the United States cannot read at grade level. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just $1. Text the word GRADE to 323232 right now. Hooked on Phonics is highly effective and incredibly fun, and everything can be done right from home and in less than 20 minutes a day. For more than 30 years, Hooked on Phonics has been the proven learn-to-read program that kids love to use. Text GRADE to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text GRADE to 323232 right now and get started for just $1. Text GRADE to 323232 now. Text GRADE to 323232. The, um, I, I don't believe for a moment that you've got hundreds of people dying in Zimbabwe from measles, hundreds of children. This is a lie. This is a narrative that's being sold to us. It is as, um, it, it lacks as, I don't, I don't, I don't believe this for a second any more than I believe people were falling down in the streets in China, even though they filmed that to try to scare you. Uh, I don't believe that at all. This is coming from unreliable sources like AFP, Reuters, AP, things like that. Uh, it is a mainstream narrative. I don't believe it. Uh, Zimbabwe's measles outbreak on August 16th, starting sometime earlier this month, reported deaths doubling in less than a week and so forth and so on. This is nothing in uh, uh, the, um, actually, this particular article is coming from Breitbart. But then, of course, Breitbart was completely credulous about the entire COVID thing, um, which I can almost uh, accept from them because they had been AWOL on covering what was going on with vaccines for the longest time. Uh, I don't accept any excuses from people like Alex and Mike Adams because they had been covering it and they knew what was going on with vaccines. Breitbart uh, basically didn't cover that. So you could say that they were deceived, ignorant or whatever. 
but they have been pushing the vaccines and COVID all along. And uh, now they're pushing the idea that there's some measles epidemic happening in Zimbabwe. Then you got the Wall Street Journal headline. Polio vaccines are urged in New York as once defeated virus lurks. This is not about anything other than trying to recover the uh, damaged reputation of the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, this one from Reuters. Wastewater shows polio virus was present in New York State as early as April. And on and on. And then what are the new products that they have coming out? Well, uh, Eugipius.com. Uh, says, uh, well, they're getting ready to deliver the mRNA by shooting it up your nose. He says, um, <clears throat> this is uh, from Operation Nasal Vaccine. Lightning speed to counter COVID-19 in science immunology. That's the magazine. And so science immuno immunology says just 10 months after the initial genome sequencing of the severe acute respiratory syndrome, Coronavirus, SARS-2, right? Uh, two mRNA vaccines in just 10 months were demonstrated to provide 95% efficacy against symptomatic infections. Absolutely untrue. These were pronouncements that were made, and they were not believable at the time, if you remember. It was the Monday after the Tuesday election with uh, Biden being coronated on Saturday. So they have the Tuesday election. By Saturday, the mainstream media pronounces him president. The very next day, CBS had in the can a thing talking about how rapidly they were ready for the military to roll out Operation Warp Speed. So that was Sunday. The next day, as soon as it was approved, the next day Pfizer comes out and says, we're finished and we have 90% efficacy. The day following that, the next uh, day, Tuesday, Russia comes out, says, um, I forget whether it was 92 or 93% effective, but they did the one-upsmanship. It's like, come on. I didn't even believe the 90% effective. And, of course, there was no way they could know that because the only way that you calculate efficacy is to vaccinate two different groups, a control group of the placebo and another group, and then let them mingle for a couple of years and then look at it after a couple of years because you can't do a challenge test to them. That's unethical, as I was saying before with Nuremberg trial. So the very next day, Russia comes out, says 92, 93%. The following week, following Monday, Moderna comes out, says we're 94% effective. I said, look at how ridiculous this is. And the next day, Pfizer comes out and says 94.5%. And so Science Immunology Magazine says, well, you had two vaccines that were 95% effective. And uh, just did that in 10 months. What a pack of lies. And they continued. They said there's been a market fall off in the capacity for vaccinations and for booster shots uh, to block infections and transmissions. Well, they're right about that. That's the purpose of a vaccine is to block transmission and infection, except it doesn't do that. They said a major uh, unmet clinical need has arisen to block the transmission chain. Isn't it amazing how they cannot state the They have to cheer a replacement for this. At the same time, they're presenting it as a complete, unprecedented moonshot success, which is what you heard from all the people who are hyping it. You, know, you heard that from Al Mohler. You heard it from Franklin Graham. You heard it one after the other. It's a moonshot. We've never seen a technological advancement like this. Bow down and worship the vile. And you can spell that 
few different ways. Uh, so uh, they want to tell you that it is absolutely unprecedented. It's amazing. But, you know, people aren't taking it anymore. And so we need to have something new. They said this has highlighted the possibility of nasal vaccines with their allure for achieving mucosal immunity, complementing and likely bolstering the circulating immunity achieved via intramuscular shots. Translated, says uh, Eugippius, if we hadn't failed, we would have succeeded. So they try to not admit the failure while they say, well, we got to replace this with something else. Too bad for all those who hope to be for deactivated or attenuated virus nasal spray vaccines. In this pandemic, you can only add measures, never subtract them. You're going to get the mRNA elixirs up your nose uh, only after you've gotten them in your arm. How about that? And Moderna is growing and building. They're going to build the world's first mRNA factory on an Australian college campus. Uh, the first one outside the United States, of course. And uh, so the, um, uh, they're, they're really cheering this in uh, Australia. It is a story of corrupt crony capitalism. Uh, Bill, the world's first mRNA production facility located on a university campus. Um, so you can qualify it that way to say that it's a first, but it's not a first in any regard. Uh, they've been getting government money through this corrupt political game for quite a long time. Uh, the, they intend to produce up to 100 million mRNA respiratory vaccine doses annually. So it's not going to stop. The Trump shots, the Trump poison, the Trump shots that were sent around the world, they're just going to keep going. Uh, the only mRNA manufacturing center in the Southern Hemisphere, which is what that's going to be. So the first in the Southern Hemisphere, the first at a college uh, campus, the first one outside of the United States, North America. It's just great. And how are they doing this? With well, a grant of $50 million uh, Australian, $35 million U.S., from the Victorian government. Well, let's take a little bit of a look here at uh, the etymology of the vaccine. Because it runs through its family chain, its family tree runs right smack dab through the darkest part of the deepest state. And that is through... Uh, connections into uh, DARPA, connections into the CIA's Incutel, and the rest of it. Uh, earlier this week, the UK became the first country to approve Moderna's reformulated version, new and improved. <laughs> there it goes. Now got solium in it. Um, that was one of the things with the kids when, when they were little. We would um, travel a lot in the car and uh, keep them entertained. We got old-time radio stuff, which was uh, pretty easy to get. And we were okay with it because we knew it was going to be clean comedy and things like that. And they were very young, so uh, uh, they uh, really enjoyed it. And uh, they left the commercials in. And the commercials are some of the funniest stuff in it because they would have new laundry detergent. Uh, new with Solium. Yes, we have captured sunlight and we put it into the laundry detergent. <laughs> And, and the way that they sold floor wax and other things like that, it's just preposterous. But, uh, you know, that this is what we're seeing from the pharmaceutical companies. The same kind of over-the-top, ludicrous claims uh, are being presented out there. Uh, so now they have new and improved, <clears throat> reformulated Moderna. Uh, claims to provide protection 
against both the original form of the virus and the significantly less lethal but more transmissible Omicron variant. So there you go. It's two jabs, two jabs in one. Uh, so <laughs> if you go back, the, the approval comes shortly after several Western countries, including the UK, planned to conduct a massive booster vaccination campaign this fall. Yes, that's right. It's fall. And that means it's time for your annual flu shot. Except now we have new scarier names for the flu. And we got new scarier vaccines too. Uh, Moderna has also noted that approval for its Omicron booster vaccine are pending in the U.S., EU, Australia, and Canada, all of which are also planning vaccination campaigns. That's almost like, I don't know, the five eyes, you know, the intelligence alliance of the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, New Zealand. Everybody is in on this somehow. CEO Stefan Bonsall has called the reformulated vaccine our lead candidate for the fall 2022 booster. So, you know, you used to get new cars uh, now in the fall, uh, new fashions, new clothes. Well, now we have a new fad and we got a new vaccine. And the question is, will you fall for that? Uh, reinventing Biomanufacturing, the National Resilience Company, was founded relatively recently in November of 2020. They described themselves as a manufacturing technology company dedicated to broadening access to complex medicines. Now, this is a, a, a deep dive into the genealogy of these genetic code injections. They say um, their plans and the way they describe their, their uh, business mission statement is, uh, yeah, I like that, from designer genes to designer genes. <laughs> Thanks for that, Travis. Uh, in uh, two different spellings. Right? Uh, they want to reinvent biomanufacturing, namely gene therapies, experimental vaccines, and other medicines of tomorrow. This is the company called National Resilience. The company initially marketed its manufacturing capacities capabilities as the resilience platform and offers principally RNA modalities, including RNA development for vaccines, gene editing, and therapeutics, as well as virus protection. That's all things to all people. It's a panacea, isn't it? Uh, many controversial gain-of-function experiments have justified modifying viruses for the same purposes as described by National Resilience. In addition, National Resilience has offered product formulations and other modalities such as biologics and cell therapies to its clientele and the virus production Part of its website has since been removed. So let's get this clear. They're producing mRNA stuff and they're producing virus. Would you like to have a virus produced for you? Tell us the specifications. Would you like it to look like the flu? How about that? Uh, we can do that for you. Uh, the CEO of Resilience is a guy by the name of Rahul Singhvi. It sounds like a Batman villain. But anyway, the says... <laughs> Um, the firm only acquired its first commercial manufacturing plant in March of 2021, located in Boston, and they bought it from Sanofi, the very large Indian vaccine company. Prior to the acquisition, acquisition the company had been subleasing in California. Reporters were puzzled at the time as to why a company with roughly 700 employees at the time had acquired a total of 
600,000 square feet of manufacturing space after having only emerged from stealth less than six months prior. Oh, they're on the fast track. This is a warp speed move. Ology Bioservices received a $37 million contract from the U.S. military. And um, that was then bought by National Resilience. Oh, okay. So it's kind of a shell corporation put together by people with a lot of money. And they go out and buy a company that's got a multi-million, $37 million contract from the U.S. military. National Resilience entered into the partnership with the government of Canada as well in July of last year. The company's ambitions apparently go far beyond manufacturing RNA and viruses. Uh, they want to, in their own words, build the world's most advanced biopharmaceutical manufacturing ecosystem. Uh, so prior to resilience, Rahul was CEO of Novavax. Mm. Oh, yeah, the people who have the supposedly ethical, old-fashioned vaccine for COVID. Uh, one member of Resilience's board of directors is former FDA commissioner and Pfizer board member Scott Gottlieb. Let's see, who did he work? Oh, that's right, he worked for Trump. Yeah, and he's now on the Pfizer board after he did what he needed to do from the inside. Uh, the company is seeking to act as the equivalent of Amazon Web Services for biotech industry. And right there, you got Scott Gottlieb right there on the inside. Uh, so they're focusing on futuristic medicines with a goal of monopolizing certain parts of the biomanufacturing process. Of course we do, because as uh, Peter Thiel pointed out, uh, competition is uh, stupid. Uh, kind of like um, uh, David Rockefeller said, it's, uh, it's evil, it's a sin to have competition. Um, competition is for losers is exactly what um, Peter Thiel said. Uh, Resilience was co-founded by biotech venture capitalist Robert Nel Nelish, uh, Nelson, sorry, um, Nelson. I wrote over this and I'm having trouble reading it. Nelson, one of the earliest investors in Illumina. Illumina. Do they make a Illuminati product? I don't know. Illumina, California-based gene sequencing hardware and software giant that uh, many people see as dominant in the field of genetics. Isn't that interesting that you'd have a company called Illumina? Illumina is closely tied to the DARPA equivalent of the Wellcome Trust, known as the Wellcome Leap, which is also focused on futuristic and transhumanist medicines, as they describe themselves. Uh, so the idea for the company had actually come from someone else, Luciana Borio. Hmm. Uh, Nelson revealed that it was while talking to um, uh, Borio about her work running pandemic preparedness for the National Security Council that it helped him to launch the $800 million biologics manufacturing startup Resilience. Oh, okay. Now, at the time, uh, Borio was vice president of Incutel, the CIA's venture capital firm. They don't even try to hide it anymore. So here you have somebody who is the venture capital firm of the CIA, and uh, they are funding one after the other company that is involved in genetic modification and transhumanism. Uh, Borio is currently a senior fellow for global health at the Council on Foreign Relations. Oh, another connection. Uh, a consultant to Goldman Sachs, another connection. 
and a member of the Bill Gates funded vaccine alliance, CEPI. Uh, and uh, so it's always the usual suspects, isn't it? And the usual connections. Borio is hardly resilience's only Incutel connection. As the CEO of Incutel, Chris Darby also sits on the company's board of directors. Darby is also on the board of directors of the CIA Officers Memorial Foundation. Darby is also recently a member of the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, where members of the military, intelligence community, and Silicon Valley's top firms argue for the need to reduce the use of legacy systems in favor of AI-focused alternatives for national security. Finally, a, uh, you have a connection to a company called Cerberus Capital. Uh, and uh, they are venture capitals for this. Interestingly enough, Cerberus, if you know your mythology, is uh, Greek mythology. It is Cerberus was the hound of hell. It was a multi-headed dog that guarded the gates to hell to prevent the dead from leaving Hades, according to the Greek mythology. This is what they have decided to uh, make their mascot and the namesake of their company. <laughs> Maybe they should borrow Google's uh, slogans, uh, don't be evil. Uh, they, they go out and they get a multi-headed dog that guards, that, that keeps dead people from escaping Hades, according to Greek mythology. Hail Hydra. <laughs> Hail Cerberus. And uh, it was, uh, Cerberus has, uh, is, is itself owned. I mean, this is like Madrioski, right? Shell inside of a shell inside of a shell. So Cerberus itself is owned by DynCorp. Oh, where have you heard DynCorp before? Well, sex trafficking scandals and things like that. So here we have CIA, DynCorp, Cerberus, um, DARPA, CIA, all these people tied into this. And uh, then it eventually gets back around to um, Peter Thiel and Alex Karp, a Palantir, another CIA front company. Uh, they are, you know, when you look at the other people who are on the chief of staff of Resilience, Lonsdale is co-founder alongside Peter Thiel and Alex Karp of Palantir. It is one evil web, isn't it? And yet, as all this is happening, you know, China has announced that um, their birth rates have collapsed. Wasn't well, that what they wanted? It was the globalists who pushed this one-child policy on the Chinese communist leaders, and they were more than willing to sell their people out, right? That's what they did. Uh, they profited from that. They profited from the uh, gender side, if you wish. You know, they, they uh, did selective abortions and and uh, murders of female children in China. Uh, One-child policy responsible for all that. And the leaders did it at the request of the globalists, and the globalists were very pleased with them and rewarded them handsomely for that betrayal of their own people. And so now China's central government is issuing new fertility-friendly guidelines, as they call it, on Tuesday last week, designed to increase the Chinese population, currently projected to contract sometime before 2025, following decades of the one-child policy. You see, they couldn't get it done unless they had the vaccines. Really needed to have those vaccines in order to get 
the population to contract. Even with a one-child policy, they needed those globalist Trump shots to really make this thing work. The Chinese Communist Party enforced a infamous one-child policy from about 1980 to 2016. Uh, they still boast to this day that they prevented 400 million people from being born uh, and killed them uh, by killing them. Uh, it resulted in warped demographics. Uh, they have a big imbalance of males. And I said when we were there, told my sons, I said, um, uh, this is a prescription to push China into war. Have a big imbalance of excess males, and that's going to be a lot. That's going to be a demographic time bomb to push China into a world war. Said that about 15 years ago. Um, so warped demographics, a low fertility rate. Beijing loosened the birth cap allowance to two children in 2016. They further increased this limit to three children in May of 2021. So um, we're going to take a break, and when we come back. I still want to talk before we run out of time. I want to talk about an update about the Alexander Dugan conspiracy theories, as well as the latest on what is happening with the Trump wars, because that's the only thing most people are really concerned about, right? I mean, of all the things that are happening, all the things that have been done to us, the only thing that's really important is Trump and Mar-a-Lago. And so we will cover that when we get back. Uh, stay with us. We'll be right back. Deceit. Telling the truth is a revolutionary act. You're listening to The David Knight Show. Whether you're feeling like the blues or bluegrass, APS Radio has you covered. Check out a wide variety of channels on our app at APSradio.com. All right, let's talk about the uh, Trump wars because there's a lot of uh, wars going back and forth all the time. Uh, as a matter of fact... Um, I want to read this note from General McGuffin. I began the um, <laughs> I began the show by saying that um, I had another listener, not General McGuffin, but somebody else, pointed out that uh, the term McGuffin is uh, being used elsewhere. So I'm I'm glad to see that that metaphor is catching on. And uh, General McGuffin is on TikTok. He says uh, I'm catching some flack on here for posting your content from some cult members. Uh, getting, he's getting flack from the cult members. I'm not, he's not posting my content from cult members. He's, he's talking about the MAGA cult and the Trump cult. He said, the majority of them are receptive to your information. I'm pushing them to seek you out. There are still InfoWars cult and MAGA cult members abounding on the platform. I can't resist the urge to put it in their face and hope that God changes their heart. Well, we can always try, can't we? Uh, you know, it was interesting to see this article from Politico, the headline, we got rolled. We got rolled, quote unquote. This is what somebody finally realized about the whole Trump thing. Uh, how conservative grassroots lost the fight with Biden because it was focused on Trump. And specifically in this article, they're saying, yeah, these guys got rolled on the Inflation Reduction Act. 
this massive bill that went through. Uh, we got rolled on it because the grassroots just took a pass. They were only concerned about what was going on with Mar-a-Lago. Now, that could just be a coincidence or it could be by design. You see, don't you think that uh, the Biden administration would know that if they did something like the Mar-a-Lago raid, that would completely consume the Trump media and the Trump followers, and they wouldn't pay attention to Biden creating an army of 87,000 new IRS agents to give them an increase, an increase that is seven times what the current budget, seven times what the current budget is, that's the increase, to give them a literal army that is bigger than uh, only, there's only about uh, 30 or 40 countries that have a, um, a, a army that's as big as that is, or bigger than that is. And it is bigger than the average size of the European armies. And, you know, that's about 40 countries out of about 160 countries. So that's a bigger army. Uh, they said the former president's presence in the political landscape is making it harder to launch a modern-day Tea Party movement. We can't fight against taxes being increased. We can't fight against the bureaucracy being increased. We can't fight against the green agenda because we're just fighting for Trump. I am so sick of it, quite frankly. And the other side is laughing at how easily Trump is being used to control the conservatives. That's exactly what's happening. In years past, it would have been a political Waterloo moment for Republicans, President Biden, and congressional Democrats racing frantically to finalize sweeping legislation to hike taxes on corporations and to spend trillions of dollars on climate change and health care subsidies. But instead of mounting a massive grassroots opposition to tank or to tar the Inflation Reduction Act, conservatives and right-wing news outlets spent the past week looking elsewhere at Trump's Palm Beach mansion. Hundreds of them gathered outside Mar-a-Lago. Back in Washington, conservative activists did rally around the bill and targeted vulnerable Democrats and ads, but even the main organizers conceded that they had little time to muster the opposition party gusto of years past. Everything was moving so fast, they said. The tax provisions were being debated on the fly. There's very little time for groups to do that in-depth grassroots pushback like we saw during Obamacare, said uh, uh, Vice President of Policy at Conservative Grassroots Organization Freedom Works. Um, Dick Armey was one of the uh, people who kicked off Freedom Works years ago. Um, I did a, when I was doing contests, that's how I wound up at InfoWars, uh, doing contests. But I was doing contests and made pretty good money in 2009 after our other business tanked because of the recession. Most of the people that we were uh, doing work for were small businesses. And um, almost all of them either went out of business or their budgets dried up during the recession. And so I started doing um, video production work and I won a FreedomWorks contest. Uh, and um, they flew Karen and I up to Chicago. We had a, big, a good time up there. Um, and uh, <laughs> what we did that is so memorable, we rented, uh, and of course, I'm not going to have any pictures to show you because uh, nobody looks good standing on a Segway, but we had a blast on those things going through Chicago. 
uh, we, we uh, were not part of a tour. Uh, we were part of a training thing. And so we were basically just allowed to do whatever we wanted to. The, the guy who had the tours didn't have a tour that day, but he said, well, I was going to train somebody so you can come along. And we just did all kinds of stuff. And we, we had a big time. But you do look stupid on a Segway. It, it is a lot of fun, though. Um, anyway, uh, that's what I remember about FreedomWorks. Sorry for the... Um, <laughs> that reminds me of the... <laughs> Anyway, uh, back to the topic here. Far from a singular lapse, last week's split screen of the Mar-a-Lago search and the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act provided a telling portrait of pistons that move modern Republican politics. Whereas conservative activism has in the past cycles been driven by opposition to Democrat-authored policies or actions, uh, the modern version has been fed by culture war issues and more often by, than not by Trump himself. For Democrats, the current paradigm is a boon politically. The party hailed the passage of the bill as a major victory they plan to capitalize on moving into the midterms. They argue that uniform Republican opposition to the bill was hypocrisy, that Trump once championed several of its provisions. You see, the man has no moral foundation. He has no economic foundation, a philosophical foundation. He championed most of these provisions. They said the timing of the bill happened the same week as the former president's residence was raided, and you had the split screen of, well, they could do that to him, they could do that to you, and, uh, and here's this bill with 87,000 IRS agents being funded. So which one do you think they looked at the most? Trump. And it isn't if they can do it to him, they'll do it to you. They've been doing that type of thing to people all over the place, and they never paid attention to it. Just look at the Free Thought Project. You'll see this type of stuff all the time. This has been going on all over the country. People getting raided by the ATF, people getting raided by the IRS, people getting raided by the FBI without justification. People having their property confiscated under civil asset forfeiture laws. Never convicted of a crime. Never even charged with a crime. But now when it happens to Trump, you know what could happen to you because it happened to Trump? It's happening to us. You just don't report it and you don't care. And you're not going to care when the 87,000 IRS agents do this to people all over the country. This and worse than they've done to Trump. Far worse than they've done to Trump. When 87,000 IRS agents destroy our lives, you won't hear a peep from the conservative media that is all up in arms about President Trump. It's about him and him only. It's never about us. Never about us. I'm just sick of him. And I'm sick of the people who are his cheerleaders. We feel even more detached from our representation than we ever have before because there was no time to get any public input. It's a big deal when you're doubling the size of a federal agency. This is from the Heritage Foundation. Um, I'm sorry, uh, this is uh, somebody else. But nevertheless, they didn't double the size. They increased it by seven times. Not doubling it, seven times larger. That's a big deal. But in the wake of the FBI's search of Trump's home, Trump's Save America PAC reportedly raked in millions in the following days, according to the Washington Post. So we get 87,000 IRS officers to harass our people and eat out their substance, and he makes millions of dollars off of this game. You know, one person wrote, as with any large gang of criminals, there is some degree of competition within the families. And I've said this before. 
you know, when Eric Trump gets on, he says, well, uh, this week after Liz Cheney was defeated last, you know, last week, last Tuesday, he said, president Trump just killed the Cheney family. And that comes after he killed the Clinton family and the Bush family. And I said, yeah, it's a game of Thrones. It's a game of Thrones competition. This is not about you. It's not about the constitution. It's not about Liberty. It's not about America. It's about their personal family mafias. Eric. Amongst the families as they compete for power and position and wealth within the syndicate, but they're all united in furthering their collective control and their exploitation of the human race. They are the ones who have been pushing for ever more centralized control of humanity. They are the globalists. Trump was pushing 5G long before he pushed the vaccines, even for, hey, you got to get the shot, the measles shot, the MMR shot. He was pushing 5G. That is the foundation, the technological foundation of the smart cities and this lockdown uh, prison that they want to build out of technology. Let me show you an example of this. And um, let's see, I didn't write down my source on this thing. It was uh, something that somebody sent me, I think. I saw this, but I think this is a perfect example. Uh, this is the IRS building uh, in uh, Baltimore, Washington, it was built in 1994. At the time, it was the biggest single government construction project. They paid $179 million for it in 1994. It has 1.2 million square feet, and it has 4,400 federal employees. I don't know that it has anything at this site other than the IRS. I know IRS has got a huge presence there. I don't know if anything else is there or not. I couldn't find anything else listed. The place is... Um, uh, the places, uh, the, here it is, the new Carrollton Federal Building in Lanham, Maryland. Again, the, uh, in 1994, it was the largest construction project anywhere in the Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area. Now, besides building this huge building for $180 million, $179 million, uh, they also put up this sculpture. And this sculpture is the person who put this up, and they circled. See, they've got a couple of red circles around there. I'll just describe it for the people listening. There is a pyramid there with writing on it, and at the top of the pyramid, it's white. The rest of the pyramid is black, black stone. And, um, you know, like uh, Novo Ordus Seculorum on the back of the money, right? Here's the IRS, so let's kind of reproduce that occultic figure on the back of the, <laughs> the, back of the dollar bill. Okay, so that's part of it. But then there's a circular drive around it. And there are two pillars on the other side of the circular drive, large pillars that have black and white stripes on them. And at the top of the pillars are two hands, left and right hands. You can tell by the thumbs, right? And um, the one on the left has got a finger pointing. And it has a black pedestal underneath it. So it's both of the pillars are black and white striped, but the, uh, the, the top of the pillar, the capstone there that the hand is resting on, is black on the left hand. On the right hand, the capstone is white. The only difference between the two pillars. And then when you look at the hands that are resting on them, the one on the left has got a finger pointing, and the one on the right is an open and accepting hand. 
Now, this is the way one person interprets that as an occultic symbol. This sculpture depicts the left-hand path and the right-hand path of occultic spirituality. The left hand, which sets on a black base, is pointing over to the open right hand, which sets on a white base. This reflects the occultic power's practice of using the left hand, the dark side, which brings about destruction and chaos, you know, from the inside, iteratively, uh, to scare people into the open. And then the welcoming hand, the light side, which brings about construction and order. If you look on the world situation right now, you can see the Anglo-American branch of the occultic powers acting as a left hand, bringing terror, war, theft that is destroying the existing world order and scaring humanity towards something new. And the BRICS branch, you know, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, the people who are trying to set up another uh, oppositional, they call it a, a multipolar versus unipolar, that's the way they're portraying this. Uh, the BRICS branch of the OPs are acting as the right hand, opposing the actions of the aggressors and those who are bringing chaos and welcoming humanity into a peaceful, fair, new world order that they are constructing. Once you understand this basic idea of how the two hands work together to control the world, everything else that you start to see makes sense. And that applies, folks, especially to the political parties, especially to the political parties. So what is Trump doing this week? Is he opposing the IRS army? No. Trump goes on offense against Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell is not a, a great guy either, right? But Trump says Mitch McConnell is helping crazy wife Elaine Chow get rich on China. Who's crazy here? Uh, it's not Trump either. Trump's not crazy. You know, Mitch McConnell's not crazy. You're crazy if you follow these guys. You're crazy if you have any faith and trust in them. You're the crazy one. You're being used as a pawn in their 4D chess game. In a post to a social media site, Truth Social, Trump said Mitch McConnell should spend most of his time helping Republicans get elected instead of helping his wife profit from communist China. Why do Republican senators allow broken-down, hack politician Mitch McConnell and openly disparage hard-working Republican candidates? Disparage? Have you ever heard Mitch McConnell attack people that are his personal, personal enemies like Donald Trump has? He doesn't have, he doesn't attack people over policy. He never attacks people over policy. It's always personal. It's always about him. Are you with me? Or are you against me? That's going to explain what we're going to cover next here. Uh, he should spend more time and money, says Trump, helping them get elected, less time helping his crazy wife get rich on China. Well, um, you know, Elaine Chow was Trump's Department of Transportation person. And I called it out when he put her in there in 2017. I said, this is nothing other than raw, crony politics. Uh, this is pandering to Mitch McConnell. And, um, you know, she doesn't deserve to be there. We don't, shouldn't even have a Department of Transportation. But uh, I said, look at what he's, he's putting Mitch McConnell's wife in there. And all the corruption that she's been accused of by Peter Schweitzer happened under the Trump administration. Who's responsible for what happens under the Trump administration? Who's responsible if he doesn't fire Fauci, if he doesn't fire Elaine Chao? He complains about them. He had no problem firing a lot of people. Why didn't he fire her? Why didn't he fire Fauci? 
And uh, so as this rolls through, again, you know, Fauci is going to be allowed to uh, retire, get a big uh, pension. Uh, it's George W. Bush who gave him the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2008. Again, Reagan, under Reagan, Fauci puts on the legal immunity for the vaccine companies. Under Bush, uh, he gets Presidential Medal of Freedom, and they consolidate this more. They put in, uh, you know, they, they craft the, uh, uh, the, um, the models to um, Dark Winter to create a demand for uh, this type of thing. Uh, the, the first simulation began in 2001 under Bush, a week after 9-11. They had a false flag of an anthrax attack, and two months later, they had the legislation, model legislation, sent out to all the different states to give themselves the powers to what they, to do exactly what they did to us these last two years. So we went from simulation to uh, false flag to legislation. That was Bush. That was Fauci. And uh, then you know Trump comes in with all of that. It's amazing what they can get done with a fifth column. Republican president in, isn't it? Uh, so um, with all of that, how does this happen? Well, you know, you had Alex Jones last week, and it didn't last very long, did it? Uh, he came out yet again against uh, Donald Trump. I had somebody put it up on the, uh, on the question thing. Did you see that Alex just went off on Trump? And, and I said, well, I hadn't seen that yet again, you mean? Uh, how many times has he said, I'm off the Trump train, and then within... 24, 48 hours or whatever, he jumps back on the Trump train. Seen it over and over again. Doesn't surprise me. I know what he says in private about Trump. I know what he really thinks about Trump. And I know that he is milking the MAGA people for everything that he can get from them. And one of the ways that you do that is by attaching yourself to Trump. And it also is a situation where I'm sure Alex was informed that he does not want to be the enemy of uh, Donald Trump. So... Uh, this happened last Wednesday, headline from Newsweek. Alex Jones endorses, quote, someone way better than Trump. And he said at the time, I've been persecuted like nothing in my life for supporting Trump. Yeah, he has. And he's also been financially rewarded in record amounts, like he'd never seen money like that before. Uh, and he said that made me kind of pigheadedly support him a few years ago, even though I disagreed with his warp speed. That's it? That's all you disagreed with? It was just the war. You didn't care about the lockdowns. You didn't care about the middle class being declared non-essential. You didn't care about the mask and the social distancing and the lies. Oh, that's right. You were selling the mask. You were selling the panic. That's one of the reasons why he had a record year. Uh, he said, but that said, I am now supporting DeSantis. DeSantis has just gone from being awesome to being unbelievably good. He's getting red-pilled more and more each day. I'm a DeSantis guy. And so then on Wednesday, Jones said that he was coming after Trump. Uh, for supporting the vaccines that would attempt to block any attempt by the former president to join the New World Order and destroy us. He accuses Trump of joining the New World Order to destroy us and uh, said he's coming after us with the vaccines. Well, actually, he's coming after Trump because Trump came after us with the vaccines. But um, then we've just had, this is also sent to me, uh, we've just had um, Alex backing out of this. Desperate Alex Jones pleads for forgiveness from Trump after backing DeSantis. So over the weekend, I heard about it on, I guess it was Thursday or Friday, somebody put it up here on this. And it's going over the weekend, and people are saying, look, you know, uh, these right-wing people have always supported Trump no matter what. They're now backing off of him. And so now, 
as uh, they say, well, that didn't take long. Three days after declaring that he found somebody way better than former President Trump, Alex Jones issued a pleading emergency message to beg the ex-president to forgive him for endorsing uh, Governor DeSantis. He's uh, fully engaged in CYA mode. And where they got the headline wrong is De- Alex Jones was not pleading for forgiveness from Trump. He was pleading for forgiveness from the MAGA cash cows out there that he wants to continue to mill. Uh, he says that he was merely trying to tell Trump that he had been lied to by public health officials about the efficacy of the vaccines. You think he didn't know? This guy who's supposed to be our 4D chess master, you think he didn't know? He's a complete idiot. But, of course, he's the path to us being saved, right? Always heard this line. Well, you know, he's a, he's a hopeless dupe of these people around him. They're just controlling everything that he sees. He doesn't know what's going on. He, he can't manage anything. Uh, but we got to keep him in office because he's our only hope. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You know, you are my only hope. Now, this is uh, actually a little clip of what he had to say. Alex Jones here issuing an emergency warning to President Trump. Not a warning out of any desire to hurt you, President Trump. Oh, I love you. To save your important legacy (laughs) and hopefully ensure... (laughs) Yeah, your legacy of gun control and the rest of the stuff. In 2024. We know the election was stolen. We know the deep state's trying to set you up any way they can. We understand that you are a lion surrounded by hyenas. It's a Game of Thrones. It's a Game of Thrones. That is going to end up biting you in the ass like nothing else is the experimental shot that Fauci and Bill Gates and Burks and the rest of them convinced you would actually save millions of lives and get the economy going when they had brought out their lockdowns. I know why you did it. Okay, they brought out their lockdowns. He didn't do it. He he bragged about the lockdowns. He bragged about his vaccines. He's been bragging about it, and everybody's trying to stop him from bragging about it. He keeps bragging about it. He knows what it is. He knew what it was. He saw what was happening. He kept the money flowing to all these people who did the lockdowns. They enabled it. They did it through the state governments. He provided the money. He was the producer for all this. You know, I think uh, Denzel Washington had the perfect take on Alex Jones. He's not saying this about Alex, but it certainly applies. What is the long-term effect of too much information? One of the effects is the need to be first, not even to be true anymore. So what a responsibility you all have to be to tell the truth, not just to be first, but to tell the truth. We live in a society. That's right. You have, uh, it's not just about being first. It's not about being the most sensational. You have a responsibility to tell the truth. And that's what Alex does not do. He's constantly making the truth unbelievable by adding sensational lies and flipping in his positions. You know, um, you just had this guy, Royce White, who was running against uh, Ilhan Omar, and, um, and he lost. But Alex had him on his program. And so he returns a favor by going to a game wearing Alex Jones was right and putting it on his bald head, Alex Jones was right. Well, i got to ask him, Royce, which time was Alex Jones right? Was he right when he said <laughs> this or when he said exactly the opposite? He's in the same camp as Fauci. Was Fauci right when he said wear the mask or don't wear the mask? Was he right when he said uh, no lockdown or do the lockdown? Was Alex Jones right when he uh, did the one side or when he did the other side? It's easy to be right when you take both positions all the time. As uh, one listener sent this to me, said, no, Trump was no friend of the Second Amendment. The only thing that Alex has a problem with is Operation Warp Speed. Because, you know, that's not the only thing that Trump got wrong. 
Uh, the lockdowns, of course, that made record money for Alex, so that wasn't wrong, I guess. Uh, what about the First Amendment? Did Alex um, understand that Trump was no friend of the First Amendment either? Uh, he um, had supported vaccine mandates in 2019 for measles, for measles. That's what I kept telling people. They said, well, you better hope that Trump stays in because Biden is going to put in mandates. I said, Trump already did that for measles. Got to get the shot. Yeah, he paid the government in these various states to keep the emergency going. He paid to have people like Cuomo and Newsom and Whitmer shut down churches, shut down businesses, shut down the middle class. He didn't have any problem with um, the CDC assuming broad new powers to say, well, you can't evict somebody out of your property if they don't pay the rent. You can't foreclose on somebody if they don't pay the mortgage. They don't have the power to do that. I don't think government at any level has the power to do that. Certainly not the CDC, but especially when it comes to the Second Amendment. Second Amendment, where, you know, in this Sandy Hook situation, where they're adding, uh, where they're adding lies to a real narrative. In the Sandy Hook situation, uh, Rob said, uh, well, we're guarding the Second Amendment. Did you really guard the Second Amendment when you took a pass when Trump pushed out the red flag gun laws, take the guns, do the due process later. Were you defending the Second Amendment then? No, not at all. Did you defend the Second Amendment when Trump did gun control and gun prohibition by executive order? No other president has ever done that. Did you defend the Second Amendment? No, you took a pass on it. And uh, so the only thing that's happening with this, this isn't about, um, the good news is that when you look at this, this is not, uh, the MAGA cult is still big and it still has a lot of clout and it's still got a lot of money to spend with Alex and with Trump. But the good news is, is that the vaccine narrative has collapsed to such an extent that not even Trump and Alex Jones can defend it anymore. That's the good news. It's imperative for him to try to distance himself from this depopulation shot that has been sent around the world by his idol. Uh, going back to the Second Amendment, this is the article sent to me by Mark. He said, um, and this is a Free Thought Project article, that both parties have utterly failed to abide by the clear restrictions of the Second Amendment. During a public appearance in 2019, 2019, Trump proudly reminded us of his gun control credentials, bragging that his administration implemented new gun control and conducted more enforcement actions than anyone in history. In fact, ATF enforcement increased in each of the first three years of his administration. You hear that? I mean, we're not, this is beyond the take the guns and do the due process later. This is beyond the banning of bump stocks so that you could set a precedent of gun control by executive order by a president, which has now been used twice by Biden. And um, all the Democrats are saying, uh, yeah, we're going to use that. going to use that. Everywhere. Kamala Harris said, uh, if uh, I'm going to give Congress, if I'm elected president, I'm going to give Congress 100 days to ban guns. And if they don't, I'll do it by executive order. Where'd she get that idea? Well, it had already been established as a president by the Republican leader. And the Republican press and the Republican politicians gave it a pass. Why? Because it was Trump. For the same reason that they didn't fight against this 87,000 uh, member army of the IRS because they're so upset about Mar-a-Lago. 
In fact, ATF enforcement increased in each of the first three years. You see, they were raiding people over gun control things while Trump was president. He was proud of that. But then, of course, if he gets raided, not nearly as bad as what happened in a lot of these other raids where people lost their lives. Um, first three years of administration, he bragged about how it went up. Even with government shutting down much of the country, enforcement numbers only fell slightly in 2020. So when you look at cases that were recommended for prosecution in um, the uh, last three years of Obama, you were getting 7,500, 7,500, 8,800. Then first year Trump jumps to 9,500. Then it goes to 10,700. Then to 11,300. Then back down to 8,000 in 2020. But then up to 11,200 in 2021. When it comes to indicted cases, you see the same type of uh, situation. 5,000, 5,000, 6,000 in the last three years of Obama. Then it jumps to 7,000, 7,000, 8,000, and 7,000 and 7,500 under um, under Trump and then Biden in 2021. So all in all, the feds have indicted 11,083 defendants in 2021. And yet, the only thing we care about is Trump and Mar-a-Lago. Don't care about anything other than Trump and Mar-a-Lago. Unbelievable. But that's it for today. I didn't get to uh, Alexander Dugan, but we'll talk about that tomorrow. I have lots to say about that as well. Thank you for joining us. The Common Man. They created Common Core to dumb down our children. They created Common Pass to track and control us. Their Commons Project to make sure the commoners own nothing and the communist future. They see the common man as simple, unsophisticated, ordinary. But each of us has worth and dignity created in the image of God. That is what we have in common. That is what they want to take away. Their most powerful weapons are isolation, deception, intimidation. They desire to know everything about us while they hide everything from us. It's time to turn that around and expose what they want to hide. Please share the information and links you'll find at thedavidnightshow.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. If you can't support us financially, please keep us in your prayers. thedavidnightshow.com.